Hello, world, and welcome to another episode. My name is Jason Hand, and I'm joined by my good friend, Anthony Bartolo. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Jason. How's it going? It's going well. It's been a busy couple of days with Microsoft Build going on. Uh, I haven't even had re really had a chance to chat with you. How you been? Same. Very busy as well. It's It's been a very exciting Microsoft Build. A lot of announcements going on. Uh, what have you been up to at Build? Well, I've kept uh, my schedule pretty busy. Um, of course, checking out all the keynotes, make sure I don't miss any of those. There's always some really great uh, product announcements and feature announcements. And I don't know, just a lot of fun stuff that ends up happening in those keynotes. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with that. And then uh, today, mostly been really just prepping for, for our show. We've got kind of a action-packed, star-studded lineup. Uh, lots of things to get to. We're going to be hanging out here for three hours um, so lots of time and, uh, yeah, I think we'll just be bringing in different people and, and talking a little bit about build, but also doing a little bit of a deeper dive with, uh, you know, some of the, some of the things we heard about at build, but weaving in a story of how do how do we solve problems using these new things that we've heard about? You know, what is the journey between, uh, understanding some of the stuff we've heard about and actually putting it into use? What about you? Uh, same. I, you know, I, I've been, you know, busy just answering questions of people, having a lot of conversations at Build on social. Uh, Twitter has been on fire uh, in terms of conversations that have been happening, as well as on Learn TV. There's the chat window uh, and the Build page. It also provides you that conversational piece. Uh, I love today's show and the fact that we are addressing problems and we're going through the route of, you know, understanding what the problems are and then applying the technology after we've understood what the problems are. And for me, one of the big announcements that they they showcased at Build was the whole discussion around Fusion uh, in regards to Power Platform and that type of enablement. Um, I'm not a coder. Uh, I know you are. But from the perspective of if I have an opportunity or a problem that I need to address and I don't know where to start, the whole aspect of Fusion development is the low-code, no-code uh, type of enablement where I can use the Power Platform to build out my ideas and provide that partnership with a pro developer like yourself to go forth and, and really knock it out of the park in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish. So you would provide me the, the API hooks or the data hooks uh, that I can include into my Fusion application that will allow me to do you know an app on a mobile device or on a tablet or on a PC or a Mac or any other device that's out there uh, for that enablement of X. Uh, the example that really struck a chord with me was the whole Toyota example where they had the ability to do inventory status of all their vehicles across all their lots using this application that was built with very little code other than the API hooks from the inventory process in terms of what inventory is actually out there. The visualization piece was all created as a Fusion app, which was cool. Yeah, I feel like this whole Fusion thing, first of all, just that term, I, 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 I don't know why, but it feels new. I feel like I'm just hearing this, you know, Fusion, we've heard it for a while, but suddenly it's, it's coming up a lot more uh, in this conference. And I was super stoked at a few of the, the, you know, the sessions that I saw around this fusion stuff, because even though, you know, you, you said I'm a pro developer, I don't know that I would say that I can write a few lines of code that makes some things work here and there. But what I'm really excited about is I don't, I don't have to necessarily know how to code. I can use those power platform apps. I mean, my, and, and all kinds of things, but my mind just started spinning on all of the things that, I could do to maybe solve some of the problems that I have. Even within Hello World, we have a lot of stuff that you know we build behind the scenes 
Uh, and I'm already starting to like re-architect it in my mind using this like fusion idea. So it's been really fun to see that merger of your pro developers. And we've got a lot of, you know, great content and, and stuff we're going to be talking about throughout today. That's really focused on the people who have been, you know, coding their entire life. Uh, but then there's also a lot of great stuff for the people who are absolute beginners. They, they don't know .NET from C Sharp, from any of those things. And to be able to dive in and and actually create something and solve some problems, whether that's just for hobby or if that's for an organization you're a part of or or whatever that might be, uh, it's all possible now. Yeah, and it's uh, it's pretty powerful. It's pretty fun. It's really cool. What I love about it too is it's you know sky's the limit in terms of what you can accomplish. There's you know hooks into AI machine learning. There's hooks into IoT. Uh, speaking of IoT, the whole announcement of metaverse. I don't know if you caught that as well. The ability to have your replicated world uh, via the digital twin technology. So having a, a real live copy of what's happening on IoT put into a virtualized plane for testing and predictive predictability and what have you, um, all encompassing you know what could happen if X was in was incorporated or involved or this failure occurred in a virtualized sense, so that there's a better look at prediction. Uh, and the tools that can be brought into the metaverse, like again, with AI and machine learning and other things, the the beauty of that platform, all virtualized means you're not touching real world data, but you're taking advantage of real world data in the metaverse for that outcome of learning, for that outcome of addressing problems, possibly even before they happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the data twins, the digital twins, sorry, is like pure sci-fi to me. Uh, it's so cool seeing the demos and all those things. And I, I don't have a whole lot of hands-on experience with IoT devices, uh, but I have, I, I've sat in on quite a few different, um, you know, demos and we, we were on the tour together and, and got to see a lot of content from our good friend, Paul DiCarlo, who's actually on the show today. And he's going to be showing us a really, really cool demo around IoT that uh, you're going to be just blown away by. So it's pretty cool stuff. What, you know, what we're all doing within the dataverse and with IoT and the digital twins thing. I, I don't know if you haven't, if you haven't looked into that stuff, go check it out for sure. So what struck a chord with you in terms of build? Well, one of the things that I thought I was really proud of uh, very early on in the, in the keynote was, um, or not in the keynote, but like, well, actually, let me back up a little bit because during the keynote, there's, I spotted this one book in the background that Satya had on there. And it's this book written by my friend, uh, Dr. Nicole Forsgren. And she was talking about a program that they have going um, that's really a, a, around um, providing more sustainable um focus on our developers and the actual velocity that's behind our developers. Make sure we don't burn each other out and we're, we're focusing on the health and wellness of our developers. And I thought that was really interesting. And, um, you know, it, I love it whenever I feel proud about the things that we're doing at Microsoft. And that was for sure one of the first things that stood out to me was that, um, was that bit. Yeah, I know. And that's the thing, right? The whole aspect of us working from home uh, in, in terms of everything that's going on right now, it, it's hard. And you have this situation where you hear the term now, you know, uh, you're, you're not working from home, you're living at work. Mm -hmm. And that whole aspect of burnout is a real thing. And so to, to be mindful about that and to bring that up, especially at Build, you know, we don't want to stem creativity. So burnout is something that does stem creativity and something to be mindful of. Make sure you do take your time off. Make sure you take some time to, to turn things off. Uh, I try, you know, hard on the weekends. All the devices are off, other than my uh, phone for specific people that need to get a hold of me. 
other than that, I don't try to touch my computer unless I'm playing Call of Duty. Yeah. Uh, everything else is completely silent. Make sure you do take those breaks. Yeah, I'm the same way. And you know, one of the details of that of, of that program that they were talking about is they've got this framework that they call Space, and it really helps you know, add some teeth to, to a plan of how do we make sure that we're keeping our developers ha happy and, and healthy and that we are, if we're going to focus on velocity, which of course is, you know, something that's important to the business, that we do it in a, in a thoughtful and a mindful way. So uh, I thought that stuff was really impressive. The other thing that I think is, is just kind of huge news, or at least I was blown away, is all the stuff around Azure Arc and how we can do things now um, in Kubernetes clusters. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in logic apps and, 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 you know, kind of the no code stuff. And this just opens up the door for all kinds of stuff. I mean, did you happen to catch any of the stuff around Azure Arc? Oh yeah. Azure Arc, you know, is something that very excited about it's, it's not new, but it's, it's now evolving in terms of its capability. Uh, and we're so lucky to have Thomas Maurer on the show today. He's our uh, resident guru for all things Azure Arc, the introduction of running Azure apps on premises was very interesting. And a lot of organizations were talking about this on social media. What does that actually mean? And that's going to be our segment today with Thomas when he runs through the whole aspect of what's capable from Azure Arc and what was talked about and announced. Uh, I don't want to steal his thunder, but it, it was very compelling to pay attention to. We've seen a lot of talk about it in the infrastructure sense, but to see that enablement in the developer sense is something where a lot of people were surprised by it. Uh, and so we're very excited to have Thomas to talk about that on the show. Yeah, that's going to be a pretty awesome demo. Can't wait to see that as well. And you know, you just reminded me of something else that I, I kind of had to like stop what I was doing and and pay a little closer attention to the session was the run, one around uh, Cosmos DB serverless. Um, this this whole idea of now being able to really you know just do the d the database processing more in a serverless way, I think also enables people uh, to to really experiment with some different stuff, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, there's, we always have to worry about the state of our data and making sure that, you know, you wouldn't just put a, a production database in an ephemeral uh, situation where it can just, you know, zap go away. But the fact that we are now starting to venture off into this serverless conversation around databases, I think is a huge thing. I think that whole aspect of velocity from the developer's pr perspective is not just about taking that time for yourself and taking a break, but also making the tools easier and more accessible to really run with your creativity and really run with your uh, ideas in a much more frictionless uh, format, as opposed to worrying about specific tools to use and worrying about where you need to park your data, which is great to, to hear about. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I think, which I thought was interesting coming from my like ops background, uh, there's a lot of PowerShell fans out there, a lot of PowerShell users. And one of the other big pieces of news was that in the durable function space, um, you can now actually write some things in PowerShell. PowerShell is now supported in durable functions, which I think is going to be really great for a lot of folks who are, um, you know, maybe not just the ops folks, but the, the people who have been programming and doing things in PowerShell for a long time. I think that really opens up the doors for them as well. So I think we're ready to get into our first segment. So Jason, take it away. Yeah, so next up, uh, we're going to be talking to our good friend uh, over at, I uh, shouldn't say over at Static Web Apps because he is the Static Web Apps guy, but we've got Burke Holland here to share all kinds of great news around Static Web Apps. How's it going, Burke? What's up, Jason? Thank you for uh, having you know, me. Another beautiful day here. Yeah, just, you know, hanging out, talking about Microsoft Build. Doing your thing. You know what you need in that room? What do I need over here? Uh, at least several more monitors and maybe two more computers, possibly another light up keyboard. I don't know. 
I just that, feel like there's enough of that going on in the background. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of how I operate over here is like, where, how can I just are, fill in some gaps? Are you mining Dogecoin, Jason, in your <laughs> office? Be honest with me. I won't tell anybody. It's just Yeah, well, I, I was doing it for a little while, but uh, it turns <laughs> out it's it's uh, not very efficient. But um, yeah, so All what right. kind of stuff are you going to be talking to us about on Azure Static? I've been following Azure Static Web Apps literally since it you know, went into preview actually before it was in preview. I somehow got onto an email thread and was understanding uh, way more things that were over my head. I felt like I shouldn't be on this email thread, but got yeah, to right. play with Azure Static Web Apps very early on, helped, you know, beta test a lot of stuff. We're now in general availability, right? Like what's going on? We are, we are. So actually, uh, Mr. Producer, I'm going to change my screen. If you want to go ahead and throw my screen share up. Oh, good. We're there. So let's talk about Azure Static Web Apps for a second. I've got my cranberry juice. And I'm ready to go. So Azure Static Web Apps is a way to host a static web app. Um, if you look at the, the marketing page, it says it has a lot of big words. Uh, where is it? Here it is. A serverless web app hosting service that offers streamlined full stack development from source code to high global availability. Okay, but what does that actually mean? Um, Let's take a look at a practical example here. So when we talk about a static app, what we're talking about is an application that doesn't have a server component. So there's no PHP, there's no .NET, there's no JSP. There's nothing on the server that's composing the page before it gets sent down to you. And so these are often apps like um, React apps, Vue apps, Angular apps, or apps that are made with static site generators like Jekyll or Hugo or something like that. So let's create one of those. Um, so you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, let's, if we did one called uh, a React site, and I'm just using the React uh, scaffolding tool here, it's called create React app, and then we hit enter, uh, and that would take some time. Um, I've already got one of these up, so let's go ahead and jump over there. So this is a React app. I'm sorry if you're not a React person, if you're an Angular person, my apologies. This is, this is, not, this is not personal. <laughs> it's just the framework that I picked. Uh, but of course, this works for any JavaScript framework and Blazor as well, anything that's front-end driven. So when you have an application like this React app here, uh, the way that you run this locally is you, you do npm start, and this fires up your site. And we'll just let this run. And then this is this is a React app. If you've done React before, this is no surprise. This is exactly what you get when you run the app. You've seen this before. So the problem with these apps is that they are fundamentally different in that we've gone back to complete client-side uh, development. And that means that there's no server component. And so when you actually build this thing, so you do when you want to deploy it, you do npm run build. This would do a build for you, and you actually get a build folder. And the build folder is actually what you deploy for your application. And the problem has been that Azure didn't really have a good solution for these kinds of apps because you don't really need app service for this app. You don't need a runtime. You don't need Node. You don't need anything. All you need is a web server that can serve up index.html. And so for a while, we were doing that with Azure Storage because Azure Storage is really good at serving up files really fast. And the index file is just a static file. And so when we say a static app, we just mean the server doesn't change it. So Static Web Apps is a new service for hosting these apps. And let me show you how that works. So the way that we get this thing up onto Azure, there's a couple of different ways we could do it. Of course, we could do it from the CLI, but let's do it from the portal because there's more uh, to look at. So I'm going to create a new resource here. And I'm going to um, look for a static web app. And 
we'll do a search for that and then we'll just create one. And then here, let's just create a new resource group. Tip, if you're messing around with demos, I always put delete me in front of my resource group. I learned that from Jeff Holland's the smart trick. So they can just go back later and delete all your delete me resource groups or automate that with PowerShell function. All right, so let's say delete me my static app. And then we need the name and all that stuff. Um, before we do that, what I want to do here is take this app right here, and I just want to add it to GitHub. So I'm just going to say initial commit. Let's push this thing to GitHub. And I don't know if you know this, but from VS Code, you can choose publish to GitHub. And you can actually publish your, your site directly to GitHub, and it will create the repository for you. So you don't have to create the repository, then come back, then add your files, then commit them. It will just do that, and then it's all pushed, and there it is. That was for free. Doesn't anything to do with static web apps. Just something VS Code does for you because we love you. We love you. All right. So let's finish on with our static web app here. So this hey, is Bert, yeah. can I make a request for you on my end? Just a little hard to see. Can we zoom in on the portal so I can see some of the fields a little easier? That's per, yeah. Wait, that's tell, tell me when to stop. Uh, well, I might be good. Too. Let's no. go back to at least uh, 125 or 150. Okay. Hold yeah. on. Right there. Uh, no. Whoa. I did that to myself and now I've messed it all up. Here we go. How's this? Is that better? <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, Bert. Okay. So we've given it a name, something fairly simple here. And then notice that we have a free. You like that? Free? I like that. Uh, so yeah, it's free to run a static web app for hobby or personal project. Standard has some more enterprise uh, production features in it for you. Um, and then what we want to do is tell it where to deploy our code from. And we're going to select GitHub and then sign in with GitHub. Uh, and it says, let's just review this to make sure Azure Static Web Apps wants access to your Burr Collins account, full control of my repositories. That sounds fine. Let's just grant that. Uh, and then we'll just sign in here. Okay. And now what we need to do is find that repository that we just published. So we've got, uh, what did we call it? We called it, uh, anybody remember? Wait, look right here. My React site. So just look for my React site. Okay, here it is. And then it wants to know what branch. We're just going to choose the default branch that GitHub gives us because we've only got one. And then React. And then the rest of this stuff, it wants to know where my app is. It's in the root. You can. It's just automatically configuring this for React. And it knows that the output when the build runs will be in the build folder. So let's go ahead and review and create this. It's looking good. And you can see how fast that resource uh, gets created here. It doesn't take long. And what happens is our site gets stood up. See, it's pretty fast. And if we go to the site, we get this URL here. So let's go here. You'll see that our app is live and waiting for content. So how do we get our app up into Static Web Apps? Um, actually, we don't have to do anything at all. So if we read this, it says, thank you for using Azure Static Web Apps. We have not received your content yet. Okay, legit. Click here to check the status of your GitHub action runs. So we click this, we get taken to the GitHub repo. So it's the same repo. And we now have an action running. So what happened is Static Web Apps adds this file, which basically builds and deploys my application to Azure. So this is built-in CI/CD. It just sets it up for you. You don't have to do anything. It just does it, and it just works. All right, so let's come back here while our actions file is running. So this is going to build and deploy 
this, this React site up to static web apps. So what happens here is it checks out the code. It does NPM run build actually on our build servers. And the tool that we use is called Oryx. Uh, that's just a, the name of the build tool that we use. And then it's going to take that and it's going to publish it up to Azure for us. Uh, and so because we're using static web apps, we don't have to pay for Node or ASP.NET or PHP or something that we don't need because all we really have is an index.html file. And we're doing this in real time here. So we'll kind of let this action run. And actually, I think we can check the status of this if we just jump in. And if you haven't used GitHub Actions before, um, they can be, if we're being completely honest, and we can be honest, we're friends, they could be a little confusing. So let's look at them. This it's this is YAML, okay? So if you haven't seen this format before, that's what this is. And it's <laughs> what it's doing is it's telling it GitHub, hey, when there's a push or a pull request or something is closed, okay, I want you to run this build and deploy job. And then it pulls in some secrets that it's added that allows GitHub to talk to Azure securely. And it's going to upload your project. And then here's those settings that we had earlier. Uh, and then there's some additional stuff down here that helps with what to do when uh, the job is finished running. It's kind of cleaning up. So, Berg, I've got a question for you. Yep. Um, you might have to zoom in on this one, too, because I think it's on a different oh, tab. Is it really? The, yeah, it's probably tiny. But the um, so no, nobody has to adjust this GitHub action out of the gate. It should be just ready to go. The code's already been dropped in there. You don't have to know any of this YAML, XAML, JSON right. stuff. Like it just will build it and it's ready, right? That's right. And, and that's sort of the tricky part about setting up any sort of CI CD is that you have to do this part, right? Like once it's set up, it's all well and good, but how in the world are you going to get to this, this point? Oh, okay. Awesome. And so Thanks. That's what Azure is doing for you. All right, so let's check on the status of our run here. I'm zooming out a little bit. Oh, look, we're finished. Uh, so let's click on this and dig into the logs a little bit. If we uh, check this out, let's see here, build and deploy. So if we scroll down, you'll see that it's uh, using Node, uh, using Yarn, running Yarn install, um, and it's Yarn run build. So it's building the project. And then it deploys it, and it's like, hey, your site's up. Go ahead and visit it. So if we click on this, we should get our React app, and we do. We do. Okay, so now let's go back here and change this. So let's change this and say, um, you know, static web apps are the best apps. No lie. No lie. All right, let's save this. And then what we want to do is just um, um, make the app better, push our change to GitHub. And I don't know if you know this, but you don't actually have to stage your changes in VS Code. You just do Control-Enter and it will stage for you. And the first time you do it, it actually asks you, it's like, hey, you're trying to commit without staging. You want to just stage for you? Yes, I do, I do. And then let's push it. And when we push it, I bet you can guess what's gonna happen here. Let's go back to our repo, scroll to the top, let's go to actions and look, another action is kicked off. And so what's happening is it's rebuilding and deploying the site. Now, the reason why static apps are different than server apps is that they're front-end driven, but this means that you have to have an API to connect to in order to get at data. And to provide this for you, Static Web Apps has Azure functions built in to allow you to create RESTful endpoints that you can call. So let's take a look at how that works. I'm gonna come over here and look at the Static Web Apps extension, which you can get from the extension gallery for VS Code. Just look for Static Web Apps and hit this lightning bolt. 
And it lets me select a language for my function. Let's just do uh, TypeScript, sounds good. And we'll say get message as part of our uh, function that we're creating. So when we do this, it adds a function here, but it more importantly, what you need to notice is that within our React project, we now have an API folder with a get message folder. And then inside of that, here's the code. So what I wanna do here is just return something really simple, right? We don't need uh, anything complex. Let's just say we wanna return an object where the message is, uh, hello, uh, hello from the API. I don't know. I'm having a hard time being original. It's uh, 624 my time. My brain's already checked out. Hello world. Hello, oh, that's a good one. Hold on, wait. I feel like my conscience is whispering to me. Okay, uh, let's go back to our app. And now we just want to pull this into our app. So the way that we do this is uh, with an H with a uh, an Ajax call. Ajax. I just said Ajax like it's like it's the '90s. Stay with me, folks. It's going to get better. I promise. So let's look at this code that I just pasted in. So you don't have to watch me write it, but. I'm pulling in this use effect and use state for React. All this does is allow us to fetch when the component loads. That's all this is doing. And I'm just calling this endpoint here and it's restful API message. So I actually need to tweak my function here to make it a little more restful because by default, it's going to be get message. So let's change the route to uh, just message. Okay. So now we can run our API. We now have this attached to node functions in VS Code. Again, all this is set up for us by the extension, by VS Code. We don't have to do anything. It's just there. We just click the green button and it runs. Uh, and then it'll fire up. And if we click on this, we get our message here. Um, there we go. So now let's consume this from the front end. Um, and the problem is in the front end, slash API doesn't mean anything to our React app. It doesn't know where the functions are. And so to help you with this, we provide a, um, a little, let's do this to start our app. We provide a little um, emulator. So you can see it's not pulling anything in. We provide a little emulator for you that helps you do this. So let's do a new terminal here. And it's called the uh, Static Web App CLI. So it's just SWA and then start. And you can see we're running on localhost 3000 is where our app is running and our API is running here. So let's go ahead and hit that. And then let's click on this. And this will fire up our app inside of the little emulator. And now you can see we're getting hello world. And if we look at this in the dev tools, let's refresh. You can see message and it's calling it here. Right, API message, and then we're getting back the response, hello world, and the app is displaying it. So now our application is not just, is not static anymore, it's dynamic, right? And the API is driving the content and all that's driven by JavaScript. And to deploy this, as you may have guessed by now, uh, what we need to do is check it into GitHub. So we're just gonna say adding our API, do a control enter here, and then let's go ahead and push this up to GitHub. So let's go back over to our GitHub site. Look at our actions. Okay, our actions have kicked off and it says adding our API. All right, so while this is running, let's go back to our static web app and talk about some of the other things that you can do with a static web app. So you can deploy your app, you can do that. We saw that. You can um, get previews for pull requests. So if we were to make a pull request to our React site on GitHub, it would give us a preview link so that we can see what it looks like 
actually running before we actually merge that pull request. The other thing that you can do is you can have a custom domain. So this is big in the GA release. Um, before, if you wanted to have www.myreactsite.com, that's fine. We could do that. What you could not do was have myreactsite.com. That's called an Apex domain. And you couldn't do that prior because we didn't have support for Apex domains, but we do now. So you now have full Apex domain support in static web apps, which is kind of a big deal. We even have built-in authentication. Uh, if you've used app service before, you know that we have these like slash dot auth slash me slash login Twitter endpoints that you can call. And then we will send you through an auth flow and handle that token for you. And static web apps does the same thing. And then this case, if we wanted to invite someone, so let's say we wanted to invite Burke to the app and let's say I'm, a, I'm an admin on this app and say generate, and then it gives me a link that I can send to somebody and accept the invitation, sign into GitHub, um, and uh, my, this link's invalid for some reason, but uh, that's how we do roles and authentication. Auth, authen, authen, auth, authentication, authentication, that's it, and authorization, uh, that's supported. All right, so let's go back to our app here, adding our API. Uh, we're still running over here. Has it only been a minute and 52 seconds? I find that hard to believe. Checking this out. Yeah, we're good. I, I want to chime in real quick here, Bert, yeah, man. I don't want to. I don't want to to like split between the cra cracks. How important that Apex domain thing is. Yeah, um, that, a that's a deal. big deal. I mean, it's a real big deal. Um, th there used to be some workarounds. In fact, I think I learned from you the workaround. You know, using something like Cloudflare, um, but it just you know, it means you got to go and support another tool and DNS is always, you know, always a problem. So um, this, this is, I think is, is um, kind of makes it a little bit more production ready for a lot of folks actually. Yeah, definitely. And I think when we launched it, we didn't have apex domains. People were kind of like, what? Like how am I, <laughs> yeah. how am I seriously supposed to run a website without an apex domain? And we did have a workaround, but it's kind of a hack. Um, here's an example of one that I did. And you can actually go to this one and change the color of the lamp. Uh, oh, you can't see it. It's not in the frame, but I can see it. Um, but yeah, it's important. The reason why this is so hard is because, you know, Azure doesn't have a, a VM with an IP just for you. And Apex domains require an IP address. So yep. we have to do a lot of trickery under the covers to make that work because we can't give everybody an IP address. It's all shared hosting. And so they've been able to, to figure that out and make that work now, which is a, it's a huge deal. All right, our API is done. It's deployed. Let's go back to our site now. What are the odds that this thing will just work if I pull it up? Yay, there it is. Hello world from our API. Exciting stuff. And if we go to our functions, you can see now um, in our functions, see get message. So it knows that it's there. Uh, these are our functions integrated right into static web apps. So that's like the fastest demo that you're ever going to get for static web apps uh, right here, folks, on Hello yeah. World. That was pretty impressive. And, and we nailed it with just a little bit of time left to spare. So great job there. Nice. Burke, this is, uh, you know, I, I said at the beginning, it's huge news with the static web apps getting into general availability. All these things that you just went through, the, the command line stuff, I feel like I haven't had a chance to touch that at all yet. So I'm really psyched about playing around with that. Uh, I'm curious, Anthony, have you played with static apps, uh, static web apps at all? 
I'm not, but just seeing how easy it is to implement and there's no requirement for Node, uh, I'm definitely going to check it out, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Next up, we have Diego and Diego's wall, and he'll be joining us for the next segment. Uh, and we'll be talking about the world's history, which is very interesting. Diego, how's it going? Hello, Anthony. Hello, Jason. And hello, world. I'm doing good. I'm doing good, Anthony. I'm, this is a special week because, as for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, we are hosting Build, which is the annual Microsoft celebration of developer, developer community. So I wanted to make it special today. And because of that, I'm going to share the most special post on the wall of all of them and um, something dear to my heart. And... Um, did I get you intrigued so far? No? Oh, 100%. I'm, I'm always intrigued by your segments because you always bring in the, the, the theoretical in terms of technology. So I'm very excited to see what you yeah. have in store. You know, like in programming, where you are coding, there is a programming concept called context. And depending on the context that the code is, is running on, your code can make certain assumptions on, and you can write the code in simpler terms, you know? So context is important for developers. In life, I'm doing an analogy. In life, context is also important, can help us make big decisions. In, when you're developing a function or a method, you know, it's really good to have the big picture in mind, to understand what is the larger application that this method is part of, you know? In life, doing another parallel, it's also good to keep the big picture in, in mind. The big picture can help you, like, live a better life, make better decisions, and and in fact, yesterday at Bill, we announced the Green Software Foundation, you know, and and related to that, it's a foundation to to, to provide tools and concepts to, to write green code, you know, low carbon generating code. And uh, that's the type of initiative you do when you can see the big picture. So without further ado, today I want to show you this post, which is not a piece of paper, but it's actually a tapestry made of wool. And it's what you see right here at the top. It's multicolor, goes from end to end. It's actually four meters long and it's a work of art. Now you might say how nice it is. It decorates the ceiling, but encoded in this tapestry is the history of the whole planet and life on this planet. And that's why it's called geotapestry. In Spanish, it's called geotapis. And, and I say in Spanish because as interesting as this work of art is, and, I'm, and we're going to show it, we're going to explain it now, the person who actually made it is even more interesting. She's a brilliant scientist from South America. She's both a theoretical physicist and a microbiologist who contributed to more than 20 papers and work in quantum mechanics. And, and she has this artistic side and she uses art like this to represent scientific concepts. And, and she was kind enough to send it to me. And, and two days ago, Anthony, I had the opportunity to interview her. Her name is Alejandra Melfo. And if you want to see exactly the explanation of the of this uh, geotapestry, there is a YouTube video because every millimeter represents a million years. So there's a lot of history encoded in there. Uh, but the, the, the interview is more about Alejandra and who is she and why she did it. And maybe she has a call to action for us or something to remember. Uh, what do you think, Anthony? Should we play the tape? Let's play the tape. Roll the tape of the interview. Uh, <laughs> 
who are you and tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got here. Well, I'm uh, essentially a professor of physics at the uh, Universidad de los Andes in Mérida, in Venezuela. I, I studied theoretical physics and uh, I had graduated in Italy. I had a PhD in Italy and I was fascinated by this world of elementary particles. You know, people, when they study physics, they, especially women, they normally love astrophysics. They think about the stars and things. But uh, the mathematical part and the elementary things part caught me and uh, I end up learning about black holes and uh, elementary particles and so on. And then in the middle of, in, of, my, of uh, my life, let's, let's say the middle, right? I, I wanted to learn more things. So I started studying biology like a student again. Uh, you're also, in my opinion, an artist, uh, not just a scientist, because you did the geotapestry that I have right here in my ceiling it is something that i keep it up here this this is a wall that actually helps me keep something that is very important to me in life which is perspective whatever perspective that this geotapestry you did which is the story of this planet all in four meters long you know where, where each millimeter it's like a million years uh, it's a beautiful piece of art full of colors but it has so much meaning so would you be willing to share with us like why why did you make it or, or how do you start doing tapestry and, and what does it mean to you the story behind it si la historia de la tierra fuera un tapiz podría medir cuatro metros y medio de largo y cada milímetro representar un millón de años estaría dividido en cuatro eones con diferentes tonos de color a su vez cada eón dividido en eras Las eras serían de diferentes colores y los períodos de diferentes puntos del tejido. Todo empieza aquí, hace 4.500 millones de años. Cuando la Tierra se estaba formando, se formó otro protoplaneta cerca de ella, tan grande como Marte, y colisionó contra la Tierra en una catástrofe cósmica que le arrancó un pedazo. Se quedaron todos esos trozos de ese nuevo planeta y pedazos de Tierra orbitando la Tierra primitiva hasta que se condensaron y formaron la Luna. La formación de la Luna es el primer evento que vemos aquí durante la era caótica de León Ádico. Look, I've been weaving for a long time, but I'm not, uh, I don't consider myself an artist. And uh, I've been weaving for like 20 years and uh, I, I like the things I produce, but they were not really special. So I, I took it as a, a hobby that uh, it was very much aside in my life. But then one night I was uh, reading about uh, some topic in biology. I don't, and again and again, I couldn't remember the geological eras. So you're talking about the Pleistocene, when did that happen? So this is the Archean, when did that happen? And I wanted, uh, I, I thought what I had to do is I have to draw these things, you know, make a big, like you have one wall with a big uh, uh, history of the earth and paint it so I could remember and have an idea of the lengths of times involved. You know, I was weaving something and I had a lot of, uh, of thread a warp is called, where you actually go and weave, 
and I started calculating, but I do have four meters of, of warp and I have colors, like I have the green and I have the... And how much wool do I have? Oh, I can, I can weave it. So if I weave it, I will have something I could look at and see the geological eras, but then, then it started to grow. Like I can have a good feeling of the time if I, you know, spend one day and then another and then another through the, uh, the Archean and then the other period and, and how much wool do I need for this? Okay, this is enormous, but this is very short. And look how short it is, the, the time of the human race living. And it was an adventure. I really enjoyed it doing it. I've been watching the work that you do uh, with the last glacier in Venezuela. There's one remaining, and and I know that you and your team are taking advantage of the ice going, which perhaps is not a good thing for, for Earth. But you're you're taking advantage of that phenomenon to 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 study what happens with life after the ice is gone. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Venezuela will probably be the first country in the Andes to lose all of its glaciers, maybe in the world. So they are disappearing, but also we are in a city where you can see them. You know, uh, glaciers are enormous. They are like mountains and you see mountains changing in your lifetime. It's, it's really incredible because it's, it's something that normally happens on Earth uh, very slowly, or it happened a long time ago. And we are witnessing this thing now. So as much as we Merid Meridians here in Merida are unhappy about and sad about losing the glaciers, there is this feeling that it's something very unique. You know, there have been glaciers here for thousands of years. There is not going to be glaciers for thousands of years. We'll have only the bare rock. And we are lucky enough to be exactly in the moment, in the five, ten years when that happens. So you have to take advantage of that. You know, go, going back to what you said before, I like that you did it in part as a reminder for you and to be able to perhaps explain, show it to your students, teach, but you found yourself learning more because of like when you were calculating the size and stuff. So doing this work in, increase your knowledge in, 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 actually in, the, in, in the history, in the science. Yes, well, it is, you know, Science is also a representation. You are going to take the natural world, which is something, and represent it in, under some system based in mathematics, if it's the case of physics, and in, in, the, in experimental facts. But you are representing the world. And when you make a song, for example, you're also representing the world. You're representing your feelings. And every representation will help you understand something will help you see things in a different perspective and will help you with your life, certainly, because we are so complicated in our minds that everything we uh, manage to represent and abstract and put inside our minds is going to influence you. So it's nice because these kind of things will teach you that everything you do will change you. You do it, you put yourself in it, but it's going to come back and change you. I wonder, like, is there anything that you would want to, like our audience to remember? Anything about what is happening, the story? Like, what would be one thing from this interview? Perhaps it's too much to ask, but one thing that you like, that you think would be important for us humans to remember? 
it is not it is not your fault if you cannot fulfill your dreams. The important thing is that you have the flexibility to adapt to the changing situation. So maybe a pandemia will come and you will find something in you that you didn't find before. It's going to be you anyway. If I make a tapestry, it's going to be about physics. If somebody else does it, maybe it's going to come what he loves in life. You're going to be, but there are parts of you that are maybe hidden. And uh, nature knows that, you know. It will evolve and adapt according to what's happening. So flexibility is also important. It's not true that you always have to, you know, go ahead and don't come, don't, don't turn back, don't turn around. Maybe not. Maybe be flexible. Flexible uh, uh, organisms survive on Earth. And life survived because of its flexibility. And nature is nature. It's a system. It's a system and things happen in the system. And we have a subjective point of view. And, and what I love about you is you're trying, people like you, scientists, are trying to understand the system, educate others about that system. And ultimately, I think it's about enjoying that system, you know, that we're part of. Yes. If you enjoy it, something nice is going to come out. You know, uh, I, I, I made many things in my, in my loom and uh, the ones that are, we are obsessed about, the ones you cannot stop thinking about, this is exactly the same in physics, in biology, in writing, in weaving. If you are, if you are interested enough and you do things slowly, this is something else you can learn from, from nature, right? It's so slow. It is enormous and you're just one thread. So it took all that time to produce us. It's slow. It's slow and it's full of failures. And without the failures, it wouldn't be here. Clearly in your work, I can see that you are committed to your students, to the science, to, 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 to something greater than yourself. You want to be part of making a difference. I can see that. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you for the geotapestry and, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Diego, for appreciating my tapestry. I mean, for me, it's a thing of, it's an honor. A great, you know, run through uh, in regards to visualization of our history as people on this earth. And it's a great, you know, run through in terms of the opportunities or the struggles that we've had and how we've had to be flexible and adapt to change. And that's, you know, the theme of what we're talking about today is addressing problems as a whole, utilizing technology and, and the process that runs through it. What I love about the tapestry is it provides you that history of what mankind, what mankind, womankind, peoplekind had to achieve to get us to this point and how we learn from our history to address what's coming up next. Absolutely. You know, flexibility, uh, you know, flexible people do not get bent out of shape, <laughs> I like to say. And, and uh, this, this puts so much in context, like the Microsoft mission, why we're empowering the planet, you know, why we're providing tools to, 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 to the project like Microsoft Green, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, and I think like that's the paradox. Technology got us to an amazing point, but it's jeopardizing the planet. So now we have to actually double down on technology so we can save the planet and ourselves. But, but what an inspiring individual that Alejandra is in Venezuela. So for those of you who actually want to see millimeter by millimeter the story of Earth, just go to YouTube, search for her name, Alejandra Melfo or Geotapis, 
And there's a 20 minute video where she goes line by line and, and tells the story of, of life and, and the planet. Um, Thank so you, Diego, for the great story today. It's really awesome. Uh, next up, we have Thomas Maurer, who's going to be talking a lot about Azure Arc and the announcements that were made at Build around Azure Arc. Thomas, how's it going? Hello, Anthony. Good to see you. Uh, really excited to be here online tonight or this morning or wherever you are right now. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. I know it's very late for you and, and you're, you're preparing for the lack of sleep. And we'll, we'll leave that to another discussion another day. Talk to us. A lot of announcements around Azure Arc and your Azure Arc resident guru. What was announced? Yes, yeah, so absolutely, you're absolutely right. There was, uh, for me, the personal biggest announcement, and I mean, there were a lot of big announcements uh, at this year's build, but from my personal perspective, uh, we had obviously a couple of Azure Arc announcements, and one of them, and I, I guess this is like really my favorite, is the Azure Arc enabled application services or app services, uh, which allow basically developers and IT pros to run our app services anywhere on any infrastructure, meaning they can run these on-premises in their local data centers, or they could run it even at other cloud providers to build and run their cloud native apps as they would run in Azure. So that was a pretty cool and pretty big announcement. Now, Azure Arc is not new, right? Correct, yes. Uh, Azure Arc, we announced the first iteration of Azure Arc uh, back uh, at Microsoft, uh, Ignite in 2019 when we still had like in-person events and I remember so the good good times right I remember I, I remember being on stage with you there and uh, doing some of the interviews really good times and also because again we actually realized that our customers they're not going to run everything in the cloud right there are reasons why you probably want to run services on premises at the edge or at other cloud providers and we obviously since then. Um, invested a huge amount of effort to actually make that happen with Azure Arc. And so let me first show you a little bit um, about what Azure Arc is and why we're actually having it. And one of the things we realized is obviously that these that our customers and, and their environments are evolving. And to be honest here with you, um, obviously they're getting more and more uh, complex, right? Uh, we can see here, Usually customers manage hundreds, if not thousands of different applications. And some of them are very modern um, applications uh, built on modern services, past services, serverless, containerized, and so on. But then you also have um, a lot of um, uh, traditional applications running in virtual machines or physical machines and so on. And again, you need to take care of all of these. Another big part uh, is what we can see is that our customers have a lot of diverse infrastructure, meaning again, they run their services in the cloud, they run them on premises in their own data centers, they run them maybe at some service providers, uh, they have edge locations, branch offices, retail, no, uh, retail stores, you name it. And this obviously, again, adds a lot of complexity to it. And last but not least, when speaking of locations, um, they're often also customers who use multiple cloud providers, right? So when they do a multi-cloud strategy, in some cases it is a strategy, in some cases it just happened. Um, and then you end up in situations where you need to learn uh, different management tools, you need to have different tools to deploy your applications, you have different application platforms in each of these locations, and that is where Azure Arc can come in and actually make these things easier. 
Now, to steal your favorite fra phrase, how is Azure Arc empowering developers? <laughs> Yeah, so there's many, many different things obviously coming with Azure Arc. It's not just one like application or one feature. It actually is a concept what we're having to extend our Azure Resource Manager for resources, meaning again, this can be servers, can be Kubernetes clusters, can be databases. And now with, with uh, these, this week's announcements, can also be like app services or PaaS services, which are running outside of Azure. And then we get the benefit of actually getting that single control plane so we can see everything in, in a single centralized control plane in Azure, right? As we would do with Azure resources, we can now see our servers, our Kubernetes clusters, and also um, our, for example, app services there as well. Uh, the other part is obviously, and that I'm going to show you a little quick, uh, a quick demo on this, how you can then actually build your cloud native applications uh, and run them on your Kubernetes clusters, uh, not just in Azure, but also on-premises and at other cloud providers. And then last but not least, and this is again coming back to our announcement this week, run Azure services on any infrastructure, right? So you obviously, like a lot of people are thinking, okay, I want to build this cloud native application. Azure has great services with app apps, serverless computing, logic apps, and so on. Um, but if I want to run the same application on premises, I kind of like need to rebuild this. And that is where we want to help. And this is was what we're going to do. Um, and here's a quick view again, like just to have a look, quick look at this, um, to provide a single control plane. And then we are talking about Azure Arc enabled infrastructure. So that means we can connect up servers and Kubernetes clusters to the Azure control plane and manage these as, as we have. Uh, and again, this doesn't need to be this, uh, any special kind of Microsoft flavored Kubernetes. This can be like whatever you're using, basically, like it can be an open shift cluster, for example, uh, or other, many other flavors as well. And then the other part, again, um, to deploy the app services on premises. So that is the big announcement we did this week um, to actually bring the Azure application services to any infrastructure. And as you can see, this covers a lot of different services here, like app services, functions, logic apps, API management, and event grid. So how cool is that? You can now run your logic apps, not just in Azure, but you can also run them on premises in your data center or even as another cloud provider. Oh, it's huge news. Like if we're addressing opportunities or problems that exist, one of them is, you know, in specific industries, there's the requirement that data has to stay on premises. This addresses that opportunity or that problem that they have in terms of you can actually run your code, uh, run your functions anywhere that's required based on your industry. So a quick question for you, for those developers that have already deployed PaaS services, how do they take, it, take advantage of this? Yes, so uh, we do a couple of different things here, obviously, um, with, with that, right? So if you're using past services already in Azure, you get now a couple of benefits from this. With running these Azure application services, not just in Azure, but also at other um, cloud providers or on-premise locations, you can actually get um, this flexibility of building these applications and uh, I want to show you that real, really quick, um, how that could look like, the whole Azure Arc thing here. So I quickly switch here to the Azure portal. I hope you're all familiar with this. Um, and if you want to work with Azure Arc, you can just obviously tap on Azure Arc or search in the search bar. 
And you will see here, you come up to the what we call the Azure Arc Center. And this is where you onboard all the different services, uh, where we can actually deploy services, uh, where we can manage your um, clusters and servers. So if I zoom in here a little bit, you can see here, I can uh, manage different uh, like resources like servers, Kubernetes clusters, SQL servers, Azure Stack HCI, and many, many other things. Now, let's have a quick look at here Kubernetes clusters. So I have a couple of what we call Arc-enabled Kubernetes clusters. And by the way, this feature is already in GA, so we already you can already use this in um, uh, absolutely in production. So I have different clusters here, and if I click on one, you can see here that this shows actually up in Azure as a native Azure resource. It's not running in Azure, as you can see here <laughs> with just my tags here, but you can see here that it actually is treated as an Azure resource, right? It has a, it's joined to a resource group, it's joined to a subscription. Um, you can also find some additional uh, information. And if you look at the menu right here, you can see here, I have an activity log to see who has act, who, who did like configuration changes to that Kubernetes cluster. I can even use Azure AD for role-based access control on that cluster. So I can do a lot of cool things. I also get Azure Security Center integration and many other things uh, here as well. Now, one thing I want to show you, and this is uh, for all the developers out there who actually need to deploy applications to Kubernetes clusters. And especially if you have multiples of these clusters across different locations, for example, even, um, you probably want to make this easy to actually deploy and configure these clusters. So what we are using here is a, um, like I would say a technology or concept like GitOps to actually do that. And you can see here I already added a configuration, um, a GitOps configuration to my cluster. So the only thing I did here was actually filling up some information. And as you can see here, what it does, it goes and pulls um, basically the information or the application out of my Git repo. Uh, and it does that in an interval of like three seconds. I know that you wouldn't probably do that in production, but uh, for a demo, I think that's a great time. So it goes actually to my application and let's have a quick look what the application looks like. So this is my application and you can see here, I took all my web design skills um, uh, out of the pocket uh, when by designing that application. Um, and I see here that the message says Azure Arc. Now, obviously it's built of week and we're here at Hello World. So let's change that message. And I'm gonna do something you should, probably shouldn't do at home. I am gonna have a look at my actual application here directly in my Git repo. And again, please don't do that at home. You can actually see here, this is my application. I'm gonna do directly a change in my main branch here of that application. So instead of saying uh, Azure Arc, we're gonna do Hello World. And since I'm at least I'm I'm doing a commit message here, right? I mean, at least. <laughs> so let's uh, commit this change directly in my um, main branch here. And if I switch back here to the Azure portal, you can again. I want to quickly point this out again. Oh, sorry, I quickly need to go back. Let me jump back to this. Um, so here you have that information that it actually goes out uh, from that Git repo and checks the application changes. Now, I changed just the message of that application. Right. However, I can change the whole application there as well. So let me go out and let's go back and quickly refresh that application. And guess what? Looks already much better now with saying hello world. Now, 
this is only a little bit what we showed here. Uh, the rest I want to show you is actually the app service stuff. Um, so if I go back to my, my Azure Arc Center here, you can see here, if I scroll down, I can actually manage some or deploy some of my applications here. Now, you would probably ask now, how can I do this, Thomas? Like, what? how would I do that? So for that, we introduced a concept called custom locations. And custom locations basically are your Kubernetes clusters you deploy to, to your environment. And now this shows up as a location. Instead of an Azure region, I can now pick my custom location. And Azure will then use Azure Arc to deploy my application or my database to that Kubernetes cluster, which is running probably in my data center or on the desk here, uh, underneath my desk here. So if I go and I quickly want to just highlight this, if I, for example, want to create a SQL managed instance, I could go and click create. And I could actually <laughs> hit the refresh button. So give me that, give me just a second here. Click on create. Um, I could then choose the resource group here. And then you can see here, I find here now custom locations. And this is not now not an Azure region, obviously, would be a little bit of a strange name for an Azure region. Uh, I could just select this. And now you could see here, I could create an Azure uh, SQL managed instance on that Kubernetes cluster running in my data center. And the same thing I can do, for example, for logic apps, apps, or web apps, uh, and much, much more. Now, I was told there was also announcements around Azure Stack, HCI, and Azure Arc. Yes, absolutely correct. So uh, there are a couple of other announcements as well. We have for Azure, for example, Azure Arc enabled uh, Kubernetes clusters uh, recently available now. As I mentioned, it's already GA. We also mentioned uh, open uh, service mesh as an add-on for Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes clusters, not just AKS. And then the big announcement also, what like um, I think a lot with all these announcements, a lot of people probably missed that one is actually the general availability of AKS on Azure Stack HCI. Now, what is that? So I have a quick slide here, which I want to show you to explain what it is. Not every customer organization runs already today a Kubernetes cluster, right? So if I told you now with Azure Arc, you can actually go out and deploy these app services on your Kubernetes clusters. What do you do if you, for example, don't have one or you want to kind of like have a more managed or integrated approach uh, for that, we offer uh, Azure Stack HCI, which is our virtualization solution for hyper-converged systems. And then with AKS on top of Azure Stack HCI, you actually get a, the, the Azure AKS we all know and love uh, deployed to your on-premises location, right? And then on top of that, again, we can see here, we can then deploy our container infrastructure, our normal containers we're going to use, but then also uh, data services, and app services, et cetera. So lots of cool stuff there. So if people want to learn more, where can they learn more? Yes, so we have a couple of resources I quickly want to talk about. Um, and one of them is the Azure Arc Jumpstart project. The Azure Arc Jumpstart project is a catalog and automation, how you can like start onboarding uh, resources to Azure, how you can actually like configure these Kubernetes clusters, how you can deploy Azure Arc enabled data services and so on. And they built all, all on this, like they built a lot of automation so that you actually 
don't need to do like you need don't need to go through step-by-step -step documentation into docs if you just want to try it out um, this actually helps you to build all that automation and it also helps you to for example onboard resources which run at other cloud providers so they have examples for aws and for google uh, and and many others and by the way they also had a huge announcement uh, this week. Uh, they call it the Arc Box, which gives you like all the scenarios I just showed you with a simple automation script and then deploys that in your Azure environment. So you can actually try it out and play around with it and do a, like a proof of concept or just demo it to a customer or demo it within your organization and try it out if it's actually sufficient for you. So, so that is pretty great. Um, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then obviously, then obviously the normal resources. Uh, I would always send you to Microsoft Learn. Right, we have a learning path for Azure Arc enabled uh, services as well as for Azure Arc enabled infrastructure to actually see how you set this up. It will guide you through that. And if you want to have more conversation with the Azure Arc teams and the people behind these, the engineers directly and the program managers, uh, join tech community. They have an Azure Arc community there uh, where you can actually find out more. You can start discussions. You can ask questions. And obviously, you get all the updates and information when we launch a new service or when we add new features to that. Um, and so as always, obviously, also check out the Microsoft Cloud Adoption Framework um, for your hybrid and multi-cloud architectures. And if people want to get a hold of you, I, I'm, it's at Thomas Maurer uh, on Twitter. Uh, followed by hashtag get Izzy a cat. People are asking online what type of kitten you got her and what the name of the kitten. Uh, I mean, the producers just chatted in my ear to ask that question. Uh, so if they want to get a hold of you and ask that question, that's the way to get a hold of you on Twitter, correct? Yes, absolutely. So if you want, don't don't add any pressure. I think I, I did way better than a kitten. But uh, no, thank you very much uh, for having me today. And I hope everyone goes out and tries out Azure Arc today. Let's bring Jason Hand in. Jason, what did you think? I was completely blown away, but it, it was a little bit because I was expecting something around Indiana Jones and the Temple of Arc. I, I like <laughs> just misread the back, like background of all that completely. But no, actually, Thomas, that was awesome. And uh, like we mentioned at the beginning, just the fact that you can now do these workloads pretty much anywhere you want. You know, there's all, there's all kinds of reasons why it doesn't make sense to be in the cloud. And uh, you got a logic app, you got other things that you want to run now. And yeah, we got options for it. So pretty amazing stuff. Thank you, Thomas. I love the fact that you have choice, right? You can actually yeah. run it in the cloud. You can run it on premises. You can deploy it in your, in your container. It's the whole aspect of addressing the problems that are in front of you or the opportunities that are in front of you to, you know, from the bigger picture not just deploying technology for the sake of deploying technology. And you have a great segment coming up next that talks about that as well. Yeah, I've been excited about this uh, all day. So, you know, we kind of threw a lot of this together last minute and I'm really excited to invite our good friend on now. Uh, let's uh, have Paul DiCarlo join us. He's going to be chatting about IoT Azure Percept. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Hey there, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here on the Hello World show during Build Week. Of course, uh, lots of exciting announcements, not just in the realm of IoT, but just across Microsoft in general. Totally. And it's always uh, a buzzy week, busy week and buzzing and just news. And I don't know, like it, there's excitement usually when you're there, you know, you feel it when you're like at the conference. But uh, to be able to also 
have those types of feelings uh, in these digital events is, is pretty fun. So you've got some really cool stuff that I know you're going to uh, share with us uh, um, now. So I know a little bit about IoT, but you're going to talk about something that I, I think people, this is the first time they've ever heard of it. What do you got? Yeah, so this is a pretty awesome thing that's come out from the Azure Edge Devices team. It's actually a hardware offering that's backed by some pretty stellar services that are in the Azure cloud. And the problem that this thing solves is pretty big. Okay, so you think about IoT solutions, then you think about what exactly is the tip of the spear for that. And I would argue it's adding artificial intelligence to IoT types of hardware. So think about you know, being able to do computer vision or maybe making sense of sounds and that sort of thing that happen inside of a real world environment. And that's exactly what the Azure Percept product does. In fact, I just got my kit uh, a few months back. This was actually announced at Ignite and is now something that you can purchase. It is still in preview, but as you've probably heard through some of the presentations at Build, there's been quite a bit of headway made in terms of what you can accomplish with this device. Now, one of the first things you'll notice is that you would unbox this kit and it actually will come with a compute module, this piece that I'm sort of showing right here, which is responsible for the actual connectivity, being able to run the compute workloads and is essentially the brains of this device. Now over here to the right of it is an Intel Movidius based camera that's also attached to the device. So you have this camera that kind of comes with it. So you don't have to go out and find something that's compatible. It's just shipped with you in the box. And that's something that we call the Azure Eye module. And this is paired with an optional accessory called the Azure Ear module, which mm -hmm. allows you to, as you might think, make sense of sounds in your environment. Yeah. Now, what I'd like to do here is really quickly kind of go through like what? this whole experience, like what it might be like to have one of these and just show you how quick you can get up and running and making sense of the real world with these sensors. Yeah, let's do that. So the first place that you're going to start with is the Azure Percept documentation. And again, I want to just call out that the Azure Edge Devices team did an excellent job in putting together all of the content that you need to go from unboxing to being able to build a full end-to-end -end solution that can either serve as a prototype or if you even want to go into production, as you're going to see later on, you can also support that as well. And this is just a one-stop shop. So if you want to get started with this or maybe even just understand what you can do, would definitely recommend looking at the documentation. Okay. And also, Paul, I'll jump in. We're going to share li the links to this documentation. Could you zoom in just maybe one click so that we can see um, some of the options here for us? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the first thing that we're going to go ahead and start with is just assume that you've got one of these devices and you've sort of unboxed it. And just like any sort of IoT device that you've probably seen out there before, uh, there's going to be some sort of an onboarding process. We have to get this thing connected to the internet somehow. Yeah. And so this is what we call the out-of-box experience. So you'll see here's like a welcome page. And this is actually the real experience running on the device. It's pretty quick to go through this. You actually go through, give yourself the Wi-Fi credentials that you need for your device, accept a license agreement. Then you can give it a user and password or public key so that you can SSH into the device if you ever need to do like advanced debugging and that sort of thing on the unit. And finally, at the end, you'll see it sets here that we can set up as a new device by creating a new device in an existing Azure IoT Hub 
or reuse an existing IoT connection string. So if we've already like built something that we know works and targets this hardware, we could just reuse that and sort of clone those devices. So assume that we've selected this, it would then ask us to go ahead and log into Azure. And once we're done doing that, it would create inside of our associated IoT hub, a securely registered device. In this case, I'll show that in just a moment, but I wanna call some attention to this service here. So this is called the uh, IoT hub. And Jason, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with this. Yeah, I have uh, played around with the IoT Hub just a little bit, but I want to just pause for a second. And, and on the screen you were showing us just a minute ago, we have some new services. And each one of those is, or not maybe every single one of those, but many of those are their own containers. Is that right? So what we're going to show here is the, the actual container workloads running on the device. So right now we're looking at an IoT Hub. And in this case, this is like, you can think of it as like a high throughput ingestion mechanism that lives in the cloud can ingest up to a million events per second. And what's really cool about that is that it also allows for secure registration of our devices, as well as, as you sort of alluded to, the ability to ship down workloads. And these mm. operate in the form of containerized modules. So as I sort of scroll in here, you can see I've got a device that's been configured, and this is using that stock configuration that comes with the out-of-box experience. And it's going to ship down an edge agent, an edge hub, in addition to this web stream module that's going to allow us to see what the Azure I module is seeing, uh, the DevMM client module, which can allow us to deliver firmware updates over the air, the speech client module, which is the actual piece that runs on the Azure ear, the Azure Eye module, which allows us to get access to that camera feed, an image capture module, which I'll show working in just a few moments, and a host IP module that's gonna allow us to really easily connect through the Azure portal to a live video stream that's working on our device. Okay, makes sense. So as you sort of continue through this documentation, it's gonna to start to call out and point you to this direction of the Azure Percept Studio. And what that is, it's sort of this service in Azure that serves as the single launch point for allowing you to create these AI models, deploy them down to your Percept dev kit, and start to use them really in a matter of minutes. I'm gonna go ahead and launch into Azure Percept Studio. And you'll see here that even though we, we don't even, we've never been here before, I just love the way that it's so inviting. It sort of tells you, are you new to AI models? You know, would you like to deploy a sample application? And really quickly, I can just jump right in here and it's gonna give me an option to try out some sample vision models. So. If you click over here, we can select that IoT hub that has our device registered in it, choose our associated device. I'm gonna go with general object detection, which can detect quite a few different common household items. Uh, you could also go with people detection, vehicle detection, or products on shelf. So just right out the box, you can start to test and deploy proof of concepts for a variety of different use cases. Now, what's really cool is that Percept Studio knows that I have a Percept dev kit associated with my IoT hub. So it's already sort of registered that. And if I had this in perhaps multiple IoT hubs and multiple devices, they would all land here so long as they were in the same Azure subscription. Okay. okay. I'm going to go ahead and click into this device. And first thing we'll see once this loads up, I can log in and go directly to my IoT hub, sort of look at the status of all those modules that we looked at earlier. Can also just start viewing the live telemetry from this device. Remember, we just deployed a model to this device and you can kind of see here, it is seeing some things here. It's starting to detect 
a person. We can see that in the output. Also, a bottle sort of showed up there as well, which makes sense. There is one on my desk. But and let's go ahead and really see like what this thing is seeing, because that's cool. Like no dev tools involved. Absolutely. But, but like, let's go see like what's really happening on this device. So we can click here on the vision tab. And what I'm going to see here is an ability to just click view stream. And once I do that, I can actually click right into here huh. and get into my web stream video, which you'll see is detecting an object on the desk. And it's also detecting myself. Yeah. And you know what's crazy about this, Jason? How long did this take for us to set up? We've been chatting for like less than 10 minutes for sure. That's the amazing thing. Like just think about how enabling this kind of device is and how easy something yeah. like this is. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's cool, but you're using like the out-of-box modules, right? right. Like right. what if I really want to do something like original and solve my line of business problem? Yeah. Okay, we can do that. You'll notice here there's an option to deploy a custom vision project. And for those that might be familiar, there is a service in, in Microsoft Cognitive Services called Custom Vision AI. And this allows to very easily develop classification and object detection models that have full compatibility to deploy down to the Percept Dev Kit. And so you can already see here just from some of the example projects that I have, like there's an ability to detect mass if you want to do like return to work types of scenarios. If you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, it was all about don't touching your face uh -huh. and we can detect that defects in a manufacturing line, that sort of thing. I'm going to jump ahead, though, and go to a project that I thought would make sense and be kind of fun for today, which is just taking some of the IoT devices that I have on my desk. And I know a lot of developers out there have these either on their desk or inside their desk. Uh -huh. And I'm going to show you just how easy it is to train a custom object detection model. So what I've done here is I've gathered a number of sample images of these devices, laid them out on my desk. And you can kind of come in here and it'll give you some suggestions on regions of interest, but I can sort of draw a box around, you know, the item that I'd like to tag and then give it a tag, which can be used for a training set to build an actual model. Now, what I'm going to do here is, is show that I've done this already with 230 different uh, sample images. And just for purposes of time, I'm going to go ahead and actually deploy this model down. But what's really cool while this is deploying, I'm going to deploy my latest iteration, is that if I need to grab additional images for my project, you can also do that from Percept Studio. So wow. the, 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 the custom vision stuff, um, Jeff and uh, Jeff Fritz is just chatting with us on back channel too about it. It's amazing how flexible it is. Like we use it in all kinds of demos. And the fact that you can just plug it right into this thing, give it a bunch of images that it's going to train itself on, understand what it is we're looking at. Um, you, you don't, I mean, you haven't written any code or anything to pull this off. You've, you've kind of showed really the simple, straightforward way to do it. And um, it blows me away every time. We haven't written a single line of code. Yes, that's what's amazing. Now, um, while you were speaking, I was actually setting up my dev kit so that we can actually see this model working in action. And just to show you that this worked, right? Like I'm going to go ahead and capture a new image and show, show this in our new project. And once we get these images, remember, we want to get quite a few of them and we can take these in various different lighting conditions. But you'll see here now, I've actually just captured this image like as we were here, like just talking yeah. uh, and replacing the, the device. So I think this is in a good spot 
We've got a good model. And again, I love that I can just grab those images out of my production environment, make iterations to my model. Cause like, I don't know if y'all noticed, but a Jetson Nano and a Raspberry Pi kind of look similar. Mm -hmm. And like when I first made this model, there was a bit of some contention there and ambiguity determining which was which. But we've gone ahead and solved that by making multiple iterations. And I think that our model should now be deployed. And as you can see, with extremely high precision, wow. and, and by the way, it's a little dark. It's like it's, I'm in Houston, Texas right now, so it's a little dark out. So even in kind of this like not ideal lighting condition, we're able to detect with very high accuracy, I mean, almost 100% on the Nano and Pi, right, right. that these are the, the devices that we trained it to see. Yeah, and it was because of those that screen you were on just before this. You've you've trained it. You've told it. Here's a a bunch of pictures that look like a Raspberry Pi, that look like a Jetson, and um, it, it you know the 1.0 is is basically saying it's absolutely sure that this is what it is. So that's really it is what it says it is. Yes, it it is seeing. So now you might be thinking, okay, so so far you've showed me you know proof of concept type stuff and fun things like this. This is fun at this mm -hmm. point. But what if you want to get serious? You want to put this into production. You want to build a line of business app. Right. Inside of the Percept Studio, there are templates for sample applications, and these actually deploy out as ARM templates, one of which is a people counting demo. And I love this. In the background, it utilizes live video analytics to capture inference detections that we can say like a very specific thing, like people, and it will then capture for a designated amount of time a video stream and store that in the Azure Media Services. Now, this is currently built on live video analytics, but I do want to say that product is evolving. This was announced to build into Azure Video Analyzer, and you can expect that these templates will essentially be modified in the coming months as we get further outside of the release schedule for those. Okay. And so this is what this looks like deployed. And you'll see last night I kind of had it detecting myself, you can see that it's plotting like the number of detections over time. And while that's cool, think about if you use this same system in perhaps a retail environment. So you can sort mm -hmm. of see here that same thing. And we can draw in a region of interest. You'll see that pink area. And that's the queue line, which is super right. important. Like, what if you want to know, like, how many customers are in the line? Maybe you need more cashiers. Maybe you want to enforce some social distancing because it looks like these people are standing a little close. Or maybe you want to just, uh, you could put something out on the social media webs and uh, draw in some more people. Maybe there's not enough people in your queue. Yeah, in this case, you can see as the queue starts to thin out, maybe you want to start to you know give promotions to start to draw more people yeah. in. There's, the, the, there's so many things that you can do here. Right. Now, so far, I've showed you all of the computer vision features that this device can do. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't know that the audio features have ever been demoed before. So this is a Hello World exclusive. Yes. And we've only got a few minutes for this. So I'm going to be quick. So we're going to check out the voice assistant templates, which they also provide in this introductory area within Azure Percept Studio. And what I can do again, select the IoT hub, choose the device in question, and I'm going to go with the hospitality template. I just like this one. Okay, and when okay. you go ahead and create this, uh, what it's going to do, it's going to then bring us to essentially another ARM template deployment and go ahead and give us the options with which to deploy that into our Azure subscription. Now, how this works behind the scenes, because I know people are going to ask this question. 
It's utilizing the language understanding intelligence service. So Lewis, which is a portion of cognitive services, mm -hmm. as well as their speech to text offering. And it's going to kind of use those in conjunction to hear what we say, convert that in the text, call into Lewis to understand the context of what we said. And then it's going to trigger some behaviors from an Azure function our serverless offering to be able to essentially cause changes to occur in responses to things that we say to this module. So I'm going to jump into my demo area. You're going to have to bear with me here. Like I, I don't have a real room set up like this. It's but fancy. Picture. Yeah. So this is our hospitality guest suite on Hello World, the Hello World executive area. And you'll see here, the first thing is we can choose a custom keyword. Now, you know, I want to keep this whole like demo legal. So we're going to, we're going to go with a safe keyword. In this case, okay. I'm going to go, with, I'm going to go with this word here. I don't want to say it just yet because it's going to hear us if we say that, but that is the name, the trigger word for our device essentially. Okay. And what I'm going to do is bring the device up because I want you to see this thing in action. Okay. Oh yeah. We need, can we switch to the cameras to, to get a good look at, uh, at Paul's here? Let's see if we can switch this. There we go. And so you can sort of see here this, this microphone array that makes up the audio uh, or, or the Azure ear module, I should say. But what I'm going to do is go ahead and give it that wake word and see if it responds. So let's, let's talk to it real quick. Computer. What can you do? And you'll see here, I'm actually going to hit this mute button, which turns everything red. So it's like not reacting to things that I say, but you'll see it heard what I said. It says, computer, what can you do? And it says, I'm your friendly room assistant. I can control the, the lights, TV and blinds and set the room temperature. Try saying computer, turn on the bathroom light. So Jason, yeah. I'm going to let you be part of this demo. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So is it ready? It is ready. Computer, turn on the bathroom light. Boom. And if you look there, you'll see that this has worked. And I mean, we yeah. can do this with a, a number of other interesting things. Um, you know, it looks like there's a TV. Let's see if it'll turn that on. Computer, Com turn on the TV. And I'll give you one more, Jason. I, um, I tried to steal your thunder on that one. Yeah. Let me have this I know. That's, one. that's totally cool. You know, we should have <laughs> said it at the same time. I wonder if it would have worked. Oh, hey, well, yeah. we can do that for this one. No, let's not. Let's not. Let's not chance our, our friends in the demo world. <laughs> we've, we've gotten away with this. I bet we can do it a third time. How about you ask it to turn on the light? Just, just say turn just on the light. light. Okay. Computer, turn on the light. And there it is. And that's it. And so you can see there are so many different scenarios and use cases that uh -huh. you can drive with this device, which is just, it's amazing to me because we showed off all these things. And honestly, there's no smoke and mirrors to much of the demos work that you saw here today. There, this is all legit. The only thing that took time was gathering those samples for that module. So if you wanted to replicate these types of scenarios, get started building proof of concepts, perhaps start you know, looking into what you can accomplish with intelligence at the edge, I recommend heading back over to the main page that we saw here, which you can find at aka.ms slash Azure Percept. So if you did want to go ahead and like check out this documentation that we've sort of been looking at, you can head to aka.ms slash Azure Percept. 
that'll bring you to the Azure landing page for the dev kit. If you want to purchase one, you can go here, figure out the pricing, pick one up, get that set up. And as you can see here, this is a fun device for a low totally. cost. Yeah. You get everything, you know? My gears are turning uh, for sure. I mean, I, I have Lexes and, and different, you know, uh, places of the house that I, I have some LifeX lights that I'll, I'll turn off and on. But, uh, you know, there seems to be a lot more options and, th and things that I can, I don't know. It, it, it's nice to play with our own toys too. You know what I mean? Gives, gives some reason to have all these electronics and things laying, at, laying around behind me. Absolutely. So, anyway, Paul, thank you so much for showing all, all that to us. And we'll have the links to uh, to go check out more of that in our show notes. Um, let me bring Anthony back. Anthony, I know uh, before we jump to our next section that you, you've you got some background in, in the IoT. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on, on what uh, we just saw. So I, I got a precept kit as well. Oh, wow. uh, and the announcements that they made to, to during build in terms of fusion development on the precept kit on IOT, I can't wait. Like I'm gonna be the swinner. Hey, warm up my truck. Yeah. Hey computer, right? you know, turn on my truck and warm it up uh, at this temperature. I'm totally down. Uh, it's it's gonna be awesome. Yeah, I, I might have to pick up one of those myself just to play around with it. So awesome. Well, next up we've got uh, another special segment. We've got our good friend, Jeff Fritz, who's with us to talk about .NET version six. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how's it going there, Jason? So good to be back again on Hello World. Yeah, we are happy to have you back and happy uh, Microsoft build to you. I know you've had a busy schedule, uh, oh a lot gosh. going on. So thank you for, for joining us. Um, yeah, what do you got? We want to chat about. .NET 6, we have Preview 4 was just released here at Microsoft Build 2021. So excited because we're, we're within six months of release, scheduled release of .NET 6. That's going to be released at .NET Conf in November. We've got dates now. I believe it's November 9 to 11. We're going to see dot, uh, the .NET 6 release and all the things that are going to be happening as part of this. The, that theme of unification that we've been we've been trying to land for the last year or two, it, it comes together and, and we're going to see .NET MAUI make its debut. It's nice. RTM at awesome. .NET Conf. Well, I know the .NET community is pretty large, so it's going to be a lot of people who are um, excited about that. And, you know, just the, the .NET Maui name is kind of fun. Um, oh, my gosh, yes. So we we got some things we want to chat about in terms of Blazor as well. So you want to share oh, with yeah. us what's new with, with Blazor and .NET 6? Oh, absolutely. So uh, besides .NET Maui, we've got updates to Blazor WebAssembly that are part of this release. Now, I've got a demo here that's loaded up that was written by our friend Steve Sanderson. Now, what's going on here is we're able to add this element here on line five into our Blazor applications. Let me go up there and highlight it. Just make it a little bit easier to see. Run IoT compilation. So for our Blazor WebAssembly applications, will they run with the interpreter, right? We have a .NET interpreter that interprets and runs things inside of WebAssembly right now with .NET 5. But in .NET 6, you can publish and have all of your code compiled to run in AOT mode, ahead of time compilation. So it's compiled to run directly, no .NET runtime, but run directly on WebAssembly. Wow. So, yeah, what does that mean, right? I mean, we're used to .NET code being just-in-time compiled and run as it's being called, right? It's It's got that just-in-time 
pause right before anything runs, right, Jason? Yeah, exactly. So let me show you what happens when I run this application with the AOT bits all turned on there. Let me just kick off and run this web web server that has a client in there. Now, this is a demo that has a couple of pictures it's going to load up. It's going to use ml.net, and we're going to be able to edit pictures on the fly in the browser, and it's going to infer a little bit of what the content is that we actually wanted to present. So let me bring my browser onto the screen here. There we go. So I've got a, a series of pictures here that we can take a look at and we can edit on the fly. So let me go into this tennis picture here. And it's pretty kind of garden variety. A guy taking a shot at a ball here that's coming to him on the clay. But you know what? Maybe I don't want the tennis ball there. I can highlight that and it will immediately remove it using ml.net live in the browser 0.4 seconds because it's all ahead of time compiled and running wow. natively that is very impressive not just the speed but just the the fact that that's where we're at now is we can do right. that type of stuff this is kind of the promise of of web assembly technology that we want to be able to run native code in the browser mm -hmm. which means it'll run anywhere yeah windows mac linux our favorite phone devices because WebAssembly is a standard. And I mean, this technology runs so quick for us. Let me just flip back over here to another picture. I have this other one over here and it, it, this, this cowboy's got a, it looks like a TARDIS over here in the background for our Doctor Who fans. And I can just remove that quickly and easily. And now I've got something that looks a little bit more like a, a cowboy out riding in the middle of wherever. So this is a great sample that you can find. It's called Picture Fixer. There's a link to it in our um, .NET blog post announcing um, .NET 6 and the updates to Blazor. Okay. So we're okay. really excited about this. Yeah. And, and you know, Blazor's, uh, you know, not just a buzzword. Like, it's a very popular thing. Everybody's talking about it for good reason. Um, I've dabbled around it in a little bit. I, you know, have no real good use case for it. But I, I wanted to just kind of, you know, know what this thing's about. But tell me, what do you think, you know, how is it different from Electron? So great question, right? A lot of folks use Electron so that they can they can run JavaScript inside of an app and it becomes kind of a native application because they're they're hosting JavaScript inside of a web user interface that they can pass around. And right, I mean, that's kind of nice. We we see applications out there. Visual Studio Code is built on Electron. Yeah. Now that's great, but Blazor compiles and runs on native code. So when we build and deploy applications with Blazor and we get into the new Blazor hybrid models, we get into .NET MAUI Blazor. Now we've got something that's building and running natively the entire stack and it will run anywhere. Okay. So that's kind of impressive. That's something that we think is going to be very attractive for .NET developers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm impressed and I, I, I wouldn't consider myself part of the .NET community, but what can you tell me more about this .NET? And is it Maui? Is that how you pronounce it? Or am I pronouncing it? That's right. right. Yes. So just like, just like the island, right? Okay. Maui, M-A-U-I, right? It stands, um, of course, .NET Maui stands for the .NET multi-platform application user interface. And that means that you're going to be able to build and target with 
one executable with one project file, you're going to be able to target Windows, Mac OS, Android, and iOS. We only put four operating systems into the box because five is just one too many. You can target all four and build native applications at the same time. Wow. That's impressive. And, and, right. And, the, and there's something to do with... Uh, the, with the Xamarin forms too, right? Or is that related to something else? No, you're you're right. So uh, .NET MAUI is the evolution of Xamarin forms. Uh, Xamarin forms is going to continue to receive okay. new features, quality improvements uh, throughout the general availability of .NET MAUI, and we're even going to continue supporting Xamarin forms all the way through the next year after it so that we can make sure that folks have a very smooth migration from Xamarin Forms to .NET MAUI and .NET 6 runtime. Okay, okay. That's already just a ton of news. Oh um, gosh, yeah, and like, so what's, um, the, the other thing that I think I wanted to ask you about before we get into a demo, I know you got some stuff you want to chat or show us, oh. is uh, around microservices and what's oh, going yes. on with microservices inside .NET 6. So, Coming in .NET 6, and we just released the preview as part of this preview 4, is this minimal API capability. So with C Sharp 9, the, the version of C Sharp that was released with .NET 5 back in November 2020, we released this capability to have what are called top-level programs. So you don't need to write classes. You don't need to write uh, public static void main methods so that you declare an entry point. No. You can start writing methods, start writing commands directly within a CS file, a C-sharp file, and it will compile and execute them at the top level of the program. Okay. Okay. With minimal APIs, what we can do is we can start the web server and write just a line or two of code and start handling and receiving um, messages from the web server, process those, and send back meaningful results. Okay. Okay. Well, let's uh, just get into a demo here and, and I'll stop asking all these questions. I know we've got a lot oh, of fun stuff on. to take questions a look at. Questions are a good thing. <laughs> now, I love all to right, see some so, demos. Let's do that. Absolutely. So let me head over. I have, um, let me head back over to Visual Studio here and uh, I can show you what that minimal API looks like. I wanted to show that real quick while, you, while uh, we had mentioned it. So I'm going to go jump back into that solution and it's kind of crazy just how short it is because if you're an ASP.NET developer like me, you're used to seeing controller files that have public static, uh, I'm sorry, public iAction result method, you know, get, and it returns some object. But here we've literally got 15 lines of code and it starts a web application, builds it, sets up developer mode here um, on lines eight through 11. That's fine. So we get errors if we happen to output an error. Mm -hmm. But it's one line of code to handle a request coming into the root of our application and output do mm -hmm. some work. And we're just going to output the text hello world from this. This is this is the default template that you get with .NET 6. Okay. Now, what's crazy about this is this actually runs significantly faster with similar workload compared to the full web API have in ASP.NET Core. So we're able to run things smaller, faster, and write less code. So, so when I think about folks that are building 
um, microservices, right? You've got you've got some logic that you're going to put into your native application that's going to do whatever accounting logic or or tax management logic, whatever it is that your application is doing. Push that logic into a class library and find it does its thing inside of your WPF application, inside your iOS application, your .NET MAUI application, but reference it in code like this mm-hmm. as just externally, hey, map a request for the tax codes, for, for calculating the tax rate, and just hand it off to my method that I've already built, like I have configured here on line 13. And now, well, now things become a heck of a lot more interesting to be able to say, right, map get tax codes and I hand it off to some other method over here that's over in my accounting program, right? Accounting library get tax codes. I don't know, right? Maybe you have that already built and sitting out there. You haven't written any additional code, any additional logic. You're just like we would inside of some other application. You're just extending your user interface. It's just this time it happens to be a user interface that's a an API, a microservice. So this compacts up really, really small and stash it inside of a container, run it on Kubernetes, run it wherever you'd like, and becomes much, much easier to scale and set these things up and have them coordinated. Very cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely making life easier for developers, for the people that, um, you know, not just developing, but maintaining things, moving forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of at a loss for words because so much of this marries up with just like the mentality of the ops, you know, world of infrastructure as code and simplify and, you know, get rid of more lines of code you can get rid of in your, in your software. Like the more, uh, the better you should be able to sleep at night, I guess. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right. And when we think about reusing code, if we're really into using blazer, well, why don't we start making that part of our.net Maui experience? or start making it something that we can turn into native applications. So this is a a counter component. It looks like a regular counter component that I might have inside my Blazor application. But let me go over and where's my mouse here? There it is. And Jeff, if you don't mind, could you zoom in just one click for us too? On the the text? Yeah, in your- Sure, absolutely. But um, it's not zooming. Come on, zoom there, friend. Uh, let's push there we it up go. just a little bit. There we go. So let me go back into Solution Explorer over here. And what I want to show you is this is a Maui Blazor app. So it's a mixture of look at you can see meth, you can see folders there. iOS, mm-hmm. Mac Catalyst, Android, Win UI down there at the bottom. Now, of course, I'm using preview bits, so of course I'm it's it's that time for me yep. to get <laughs> warning bars up here. That's fine. So I'm able to see um, Blazor components, Blazor pages inside of those other applications, those operating system things that I wouldn't normally be able to touch as a web developer, right? As a web developer, I'm used to divs and spans and CSS and all these things. Writing XAML isn't my bag, right? That's something that's a little bit further outside of my comfort zone. But... I can build and work with this and actually start deploying out to say an Android device. Hmm. So let me shrink this down so we can see the two side by side. So if I take this application 
And um, see, I've I've zoomed in too far, and I can't see my build uh, my build command here anymore. Um, where is it? Where is it? Yeah, I'm going to deploy to my Android emulator, and this is Fritz's counter. It says up there now. My configuration that I have on this machine isn't perfect just yet. It's not going to completely light up and just pop into the Android device right away. But you can see it's build started and it's it's building it, it, a Maui application and setting it up to run over there in my Android emulator live, Excellent. right? So deploying over, we'll give it a second. It's been crashing on me, so I'm not expecting it to... The deploy succeeded, but launch automatically is where it's been kind of hanging here for me. Or we might get lucky and it might work this time. It looks like we're getting there. Come on. You can do it. Uh, no, it didn't get there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do this by hand. If I, um, if I reach in, there it is, Maui Blazer. We'll launch that and you'll see it looks exactly like the standard Blazor application when it launches. When it launches. <laughs> Always with preview code and demos. That's how we do things around here. Oh my gosh. You weren't kidding. It's there Hello it World. It's the standard Hello World template there, and I can pop this open. I can go over to my counter application. Fritz's counter, just like it says over there, and I click and it counts. But this is a Blazor application, just like we used to try and do this with Apache Cordova. Right. Uh, Jason, did you ever mess with Apache uh, Cordova? No, I never had to do anything with that, but I've oh, heard stories. Right. So <laughs> built web applications and, and stashed it inside of a web component that ran in, inside of a special frame inside of mobile applications. Yep. Similar concept. We're using a full web control and we're we're hosting that inside of with native code WebAssembly code inside of a maui compiled application really cool stuff we're getting this set up so that we can do hot reload and i gave a demo on a previous hello world about that so as you make changes inside your blazor code it's going to update inside the android app immediately oh that well, I'm, I'm super impressed. I definitely feel like after hearing all this news, it's inspired me to go play around with like this whole new toy chest I, that oh we have God. at our disposal. In the few minutes that we have left, though, why don't you tell us about the Project Ty? Okay. So Project Ty is, um, gosh, it's the project that we started working on to try and make native deployment and management of, of clusters of uh, containers a heck of a lot easier for folks to work with manage it interact with them in a way that's really more .NET friendly a way that we're used to seeing and working with these things now project tie we're we're actually we're still investing in it, it it's been an experiment through .NET 5 into .NET 6 and it's something that we're going to continue experimenting with through the rest of um, the .NET 6 development cycle and we're looking to to extract some applicable technologies from from tie over over the next six months to a year and fold it into the product at that point. So it's not going away, but it's something we're continue to experiment with. And we're going to decide where exactly we, we can turn it into a product in the near future. Okay. Well, uh, we've got about a minute and a half left of our, of our segment here, Jeff, what other important topics do you want to share with our audience? So there is a .NET upgrade assistant. So we've already done so much to, to get folks who are using windows forms and WPF and get them, get their technology working 
over in .NET Core and now .NET 5, .NET 6 going forward. And we think this is something that's really important for folks to migrate to and, and start delivering a better experience because they're going to get faster compilation, all mm -hmm. the bug fixes and new features in .NET 5 and now .NET 6. So we're building and releasing an upgrade assistant that's going to make it easier to analyze the NuGet packages that folks have in their Windows Forms and WPF applications running on .NET Framework and get their code set up for success to migrate almost immediately to mm. .NET 6. Okay. And that's coming. That's something that's being worked on right now. There's a version that's available right now that you can try out. It's going to get you 70 to 80% migrated. You might have to make some subtle changes in some of your code. But if you're using all managed interactions with your code, you're going to have a tremendous experience upgrading and stuff will, will work very, very quickly. We took Scott Hanselman's old baby smash application that he wrote in WPF back in, what, 2009, 2010? Yeah. The baby that he that he made it for is driving now, all right? That's how long, that's how old the app yep. is. Yep. And we've got it running on .NET 6 using Upgrade Assistant. It took a few minutes to upgrade. Yeah, I really, saw Scott really put really that awesome. out on, on Twitter. That was, that was pretty impressive. Um, I had no I had no background about that app, but it sounded sound like a lot of fun and uh, very timely to like show that off as a as what you can do. I got one more question for you before we move on and, and have Anthony Fire back away. here. Um, are you going to be changing the yearly update timing with .NET moving forward? No. So that's the best part here. We're going to continue to push releases for .NET. .NET 6 is in November 2021. We're planning .NET 7 for November 2022. And so on and so forth. After that, the next feature out of after seven is probably going to be eight. Don't take my word for it, but that's what version numbers kind of look like. Awesome. Well, Fritz, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing all this exciting news on .NET. Uh, Anthony, are you still with us? I am. Can you believe that we are almost at two hours? We usually do these things for like 30, 30 minutes or, or so, <laughs> and it's like just a fast paced thing. It still feels fast today. I can't believe we're, we're nearly two minute, two hours into this thing. So um, I'm going to hand it off to you. I know you've got a few uh, exciting segments coming up here. You want to chat with some guests about. Actually, we have the uh, identity platform uh, crew coming in. So Christos is actually coming in uh, to talk to his guest, JP, uh, about everything that was mentioned at build. And they're going to be looking at a, uh, Azure AD app registrations with .NET Interactive. And so today, Christos is, is Christos, sorry, is joined by uh, John Patrick to show how to move apps that use Azure AD from local development into production using GitHub Actions. Take it away, gentlemen. What's up, everyone? Who's here to uh, learn about security and identity? Well, we are here anyway. So, <laughs> and, I want to learn. And JP is not uh, a, a, a guest. He's a, a co-host. So hello, world. Uh, welcome to the most exciting part of Build, apart from the keynote. Obviously, the keynote was awesome with uh, Hanselman this morning and friends. But I think this is the most exciting part, as uh, Bert said earlier on. We are very excited to be here because uh, yesterday, I mean, I'm here, but I'm back here again. But this time with JP. Yesterday, I was with uh, Brady to talk about uh, .NET worker roles, which is something uh, very new. And we were able to secure it with Azure Active Directory. But uh, today, we wanted to come back and do a little bit more identity and actually show people how to uh, take a web app and push it into production. And uh, you, know, I've, you know, I've got something exciting here to show you. So let's start with the app. And just to remind everyone, 
I guess they were using .NET Interactive. So for this application that I've developed locally, it's a .NET, uh, .NET 5 web app. Uh, it's, it's using Azure Active Directory to secure access and authenticate users. And then it also uses um, Microsoft Graph to pull some data from the directory. And I was able to set everything up with .NET Interactive. So uh, going through the, the, the notebook here, you can see that it, it can do everything for us on the uh, Azure Active Directory, so we can automate the whole process. And I was very chuffed about being able to do that. And um, I wanted to take this application to production. So first, let's run it locally and make sure that it's working before I, uh, I publish that. And then JP will be here to uh, hold my hand as, as I do that, because <laughs> he knows more about identity than I do, right, JP? Right, let's- Somebody let's said that to... once, but I don't believe them. <laughs> So this is my daughter application. And by the way, if you haven't seen this today or you haven't seen it yet because I haven't seen any of the guests showing it, check this out. It's, <laughs> it's Windows Terminal in Quake mode. I had to install it. I was so excited about that. I was like, you know what? I have to show it. So Windows Tech will allow you to open it on any monitor that you're currently active. This is so good. It means they can actually activate your terminal anywhere you are. You don't have to uh, open the terminal. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, for now, uh, I've, I'm going to do .NET Run because I have confidence in my coding skills. No, really. But let's see, will it run? I mean, as you can see, I was testing it earlier on just to make sure. I mean, you don't want to come on stage and not have a, a working app, right? But uh, we're running on localhost 5000. Let's uh, bring it here. Uh, so many directories, so little time, and so many passwords, by the way. I don't remember my password, but that's fine. I have a password manager. I hope everyone is using a password manager. <laughs> so here I'm going to sign in with my, I'm using a Microsoft 365 developer tenant, by the way. This is very important. If you are working uh, with Azure Active Directory, if you are in an organization, usually these, these uh, Active Directories are very locked down for individual users. So we, as part of Microsoft, cannot really use uh, the Microsoft tenant for many things, especially for things that require uh, you know, privileged access. So a Microsoft 365 developer tenant is fantastic for developers to quickly move through the, the experience and, um, and build stuff before they push them into production, which I'll be doing in a second. So first, let's run it. So uh, it is my CMASCAS. So here, I need to copy my password. Paste it here, sign in. Uh, yes, I want to stay signed in. Obviously, I don't want to be signing in all the time. There you go, it is working. Let's make sure that I can actually pull my data. So in my users uh, controller, it is an MVC application, by the way, I can pull all the users from my account. Um, there you go, it's working absolutely fine. So uh, I don't want to do that. I just want to close this down and I'm going to stop this. And uh, now that it's all working, I'm going to right click publish because that's how I push stuff to production when I want to uh, test stuff. So uh, I already have a web app I'm going to deploy here. Did you say production? Deploying to production? You have no power here. You are completely incapable of deploying to production. What, are you kidding me? Why? 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 Because you're a developer. What else are you going to do but go out there and cause a bunch of problems and break everything, right? <laughs> IT admins to the rescue. Now I am your administrator. I say what you can and cannot do. Indeed, indeed. And I'm locked in my developer tenant. What can I do? 
<laughs> what can we do? I mean, what is the right way to do it? Because I, I like to write Clip Publish and see my application running in production or in, in a production environment or production-like environment. So what what is the way? Show us Love the way. That. I mean, that's the thing, right? As we see in so many cases, we talk to developers and we say, hey, you should go get a developer tenant. Hey, you should go get a developer directory, start building your apps and start working on them. And that's great. The problem is when they get there, Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Is there a question, Anthony? Is there a question? So I'm an IT pro. Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> what are you, yeah. Yeah. Ready to send this to you? Where's the hair? That's my point. Yeah. What, what are you talking about? Well, that, that comes with age, right? It, could, it tends to go. but That's right. It's an, Actually, it's an identity thing. I don't think I don't think we can have identity people without luscious long locks, right? I mean, it goes, along you, with, uh, goes with the territory. Are you an active directory um, <laughs> IT pro or just an IT pro? So I've deployed Active Directory and I've deployed Azure Active Directory all the way back since Windows Server 2003. And I do understand the challenges in regards to relinquishing control uh, in yeah. regards to the enablement that developers have. The whole introduction of RBAC, though, has made it a lot more interesting, a lot more compelling to do so. Um, right. But it's interesting that you have this type of conversation because it is something that IT faces all the time. Indeed. Oh. And this application, the by the way, um, uses uh, a, a privileged uh, scope. Therefore, um, it's not something that I can easily deploy to a production environment, a production-like environment, without going through IT uh, first. At Microsoft, that's a long process. If you ever had to do that, then you know that you have to <laughs> really go for it. You really want to want it. Oh, yeah. But uh, me and JP have a relationship that works better. So. I'll Take give it, it back to JP. Go Anthony, we'll, we'll make sure you get yours in the mail. Everybody's supposed awesome. to get one, right? Yes. <laughs> right after they finish their first Azure AD deployment and tell their developers no, they get one. So maybe you didn't say no enough. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so Christos has this app and he's built it and he's worked on his developer tenant and uh, and it's working well for him, right? Mm -hmm. um, the problem is we don't want him to deploy to production without somebody making sure that it's everything's correct. We don't want him to be able to do things like give consent. So you'll notice the scope that he has right now is user.read.all, which means oh. that his application can read everybody in the directory. And that's yeah, a big problem because you think, if I was to say, build this app and uh, maybe maybe it was malicious or maybe something happened to it, user.read.all is a big way to exfiltrate a ton of info about a lot of people, phone numbers, email addresses, names, organizational structures. So it's, a, it's what we call a, a protected permission or something that requires an admin to consent. So your administrator mm -hmm. is gonna have to consent to that in order for your app to work. And in your developer tenant, that's no sweat because your developer tenant, you are the admin. And so you can make those kinds of admin consent decisions. But of course, uh, once you get into production, once you're ready to go to even any environment that's not a part of your developer environment, um, you're gonna have to you're gonna to have to figure out a way to get consent. And at Microsoft, it's beg, borrow, steal. Who do you know? Hey, who can go click the admin consent button for me? Uh, and your business, if you're working at a big business, is probably is probably gonna have similar restrictions in place. So instead uh, of giving Christos uh, ultimate access to go and <laughs> consent to things that perhaps he's not supposed to. Oh man, this is so hot. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know how you IT pros do this with your hair that long all the time. It's just crazy. Um, Oh man, it's hot. I love the tie uh, though. I, looked, I mean, you came with a tie like, as well. You came prepared, right. man. Yeah. Well, it kind of made me look like Hurley from Lost, which <laughs> nothing against Hurley, but he was, you know, not the most flattering. Anyway, um, so what we're going to do is uh, instead of Christos deploying the app directly with right click publish or 
uh, copying a zip file or anything like that. Instead, uh, we're going to have him check his code into a repo, and then that repo is going to have a GitHub action that goes off and does a little bit of magic. So let's go take a look at this GitHub action first, and uh, and we'll go see uh, we'll go see it run. So um, I've got the GitHub action up here on my screen at the moment. At the moment, the GitHub action. We're switching. Up on my screen. It's up on the screen on my machine. Fine. This GitHub action. It's a very, it's a very special GitHub action. It's actually not super different. Oh, there okay. you go. We're here. So this is a this is a fairly standard GitHub action. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, I took the one that you get when you create a new app service in Azure, uh, and uh, you can set up deployment on your way in. So I started from that one as a as a starter, um, and I added one thing at the end. So we've got things like our Azure login here at the top that just logs us into Azure, so that we can actually connect to Azure and push our code, things like checking out the code, building the code with .NET, because it's just a regular .NET web app, and things like actually publishing it to our web app. But mm -hmm. we have one new thing down here, which is an Azure CLI script file. Oh. Now, I chose Azure CLI for this today, but you could use PowerShell. Um, you could use your own app that you've written, like as a, like a console app. Um, and in the future, uh, we're going to have far more support for Azure AD objects in things like ARM templates, which will be even mm -hmm. better. So we're doing this one extra thing. We're going to make some CLI calls uh, with the Azure CLI. And the Azure CLI is available in a GitHub action. And so uh, all we have to do to, to pull it in is to, to add this uses here and reference the Azure CLI v1. And we're going to use this inline script. Now, the cool thing about this thing I like the most is my inline script is actually just a file in my tree. And so we can reference that file. We can check it in. People can see it. We can see version history. You get all the good stuff you get with Git normally. But now we've got the script. And the script is what we're going to have the GitHub action uh, runner uh, execute for us. And uh, there's a bunch of stuff here. Most of them are guards and checks to make sure that we don't override anything. But the big ones that we're going to do, we're going to create the app registration, which is what we're doing here on line 12. And an app registration is the thing that tells Azure AD, hey, uh, this is an app that's going to sign in a user. So this is, this is what I was doing in runbooks in the .NET Interactive with my runbook, but this time instead yep. of using .NET, we're using the Azure CLI to do exactly the same thing because all of these things are using MS Graph behind the scenes and everything is a REST endpoint that everything wraps around. Yep, absolutely. And that's the thing is because it's all, it's, it's all driven by uh, Microsoft Graph, there are tons of different SDKs available in all sorts of different languages and .NET mm -hmm. and Java and JavaScript, everything you can think of. Um, and, or you can just make raw HTTP calls. And I'm I'm a little on team. <laughs> I'm a little on team HTTP. I like to just make HTTP calls because yes. I'm not super bright and figuring I'm out an going, SDK is just more work. I'm going to ask that. Are you team REST API or are you team SDK? <laughs> let us know in the chat or in the conversation yeah. or let this us know feels, on Twitter. Whatever. Whatever. This feels like doing. a feels like a Twitter poll. Team yes, HTTP Twitter or team. Poll. I mean, yes. there are lots of advantages to SDKs, caching, and all of the magic because the people who authentication wrote the SDK, presumably the people that wrote it. <laughs> Authentication, what are you talking about now? Presumably the people who wrote the SDK also were the ones who wrote the API, uh, <laughs> although everything's generated now. You know what they say <laughs> about assumptions, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You and me. Um, uh, so first thing we gotta do is we gotta create our app. And the mm -hmm. most important thing that we're doing is actually this thing called a required resource access. And a required resource access is pretty much the same thing you see in the portal when you mm -hmm. click on API permissions. Right. And what we're gonna set up 
and set up two permissions. And that's what these two GUIDs are here. So we got a GUID here, and we got another GUID down here to the side. Those are our two IDs for user.read, which just lets a user sign in, mm -hmm. and user.read.all, which is the other permission that Christos needs. So we're going to create this app using create. Then we're going to create what's called a service principle. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. An application registration you can think of almost as like a template. It's almost like a class in C Sharp. And the service principle is the implementation, or sorry, an interface in C Sharp. And the service principle is the, uh, the implementation of that. So the service principle is the thing that's, that permissions are actually assigned to. Uh, you don't assign permissions to an app you assign permissions to a service principal, which is an individual instance of your app registration. Yep. Um, it's confusing. It's needlessly confusing in some ways. And in most cases, the portal handles <laughs> the portal handles the bulk of the work for you. Yes, her, Hugo, Hugo Reyes, Hugo Hurley Reyes. So <clears throat> uh, I probably will never live that down. Someone called me Samuel Tarley on our show. And I was like, oh my, really? He saved. He saved the world. I mean, that's the biggest compliment you can get. He saved. Well, the world. I won't be saving the world though. I'm just a fat guy with long well, hair, right? Anyway, you're, you're saving the world one application registration at a time. <laughs> so we got to create our service principle, and we create our service principle uh, by uh, doing AZA and uh, AZADSP create. And now mm -hmm. we have a thing that we can assign those permissions to, and that we can consent to those permissions for. And that's really important. That's what we're going to look at. So we got to go get our graph service principle ID. We have to have that. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to make a uh, then we're going to make a graph call. So this is just a raw graph call. We're going to use AZ REST, which is a really like probably one of my favorite parts of the Azure CLI because you can just make arbitrary calls. Yep. Um, and uh, and you get tokens. All the tokens and stuff come along with that, which is awesome. Nice. Um, so we're going to do what's called an OAuth2 permission grant. And the OAuth2 permission grant is the th is essentially admin consent. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we're saying, hey, I need you to add a consent that says this application is administratively consented to these permissions. So Christos's user.read, his user.read.all, the, the user.read.all is a protected permission. He can't consent, but I can consent on behalf of our whole organization because I'm the administrator, and that's what we're going to do here with this call. And then the very last thing we're going to do in the graph is we are going to create an app secret. So we're going to create a uh, essentially a credential for the application, which we're going to need to make those uh, calls to go get tokens to call the graph. Mm -hmm. So that's the last thing we're doing here on 38 is we're going to go create this app secret. Uh, and then the last thing we have to do before we're totally done, we go delete our app settings, two app settings, our client ID and our client secret, and then we set them on our web app. So by setting those two values, we're going to get the values that we just created with this script, uh, and we're going to push them into our configuration in Azure and our Azure web app, and then presumably away we go. <laughs> so being that it's build week, mm -hmm. I decided to run it before. Christos can check in some code, though. If he checks in some code, we'll see the start running again. And you'll notice we've got our run Azure CLI script file. And when we run this, oops, let me click the right one. When we open this one up, when we open this one up, GitHub, let me refresh this. Apparently, it doesn't want to open up. When we open this script up, you'll notice these are parts of our script. So we're just printing the app ID and the service principal ID that we just created, and we're setting some settings. So these uh, these were deleted, and so the delete had these come back, and then here we go. We've got things like our client ID and our client secret. Now, you wouldn't want to write your client secret into your log files, so we'd want to use like a quiet switch here, uh, but I want to make sure that they were here and available. So we see that this thing is going, and it's updating our settings. 
And by updating those settings now, if we go to the application itself, it works. Well, so here's can, can I sign in? Can I sign yeah. in? So, so Christos can sign in. Before you before you sign in, I'm just going to pull. Okay. Come over here to the portal, and we'll take a really quick look at this web app, and then we'll switch to your screen. You can sign. You can go sign in, and we'll take a look. Oh wait. So under configuration, so here's our we call it AAD deployed app. Under our thing, or under our uh, under our uh, AAD deployed app, if we take a look at the client ID, you'll notice it's the seven EFB four seven six GUID. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, you come work in Azure and Identity, and you'll be a master at parsing GUIDs, GUIDs. Uh, with your eyeballs. We can identify our tenants' GUIDs and all our other tenants that we play <laughs> around with, which is sad. <laughs> so you'll notice, here's our client ID, 7EFBE476, mm-hmm. and here's our secret VWTUR6B0C. Now, I've got, my secret, I've got my secret in app settings, but you can always put your client secret in... Uh, and Key Vault, which is something we'd certainly prefer that you do, is to put that secret into Key Vault. Uh, but at least here, it's still an encrypted setting, and, and things like I am are going to keep people out. E.g., yep. Christos, Christos <laughs> cannot even come to the portal and look at his application here um, because he doesn't have any rights to this subscription. So if I go look at the I am blade for this specific app, and if we look at role assignments, Christos is not here. And so That's if he tried to come to the portal, if he came to if he came to the portal, Ooh, yeah. he wouldn't be able to see this. He wouldn't be able to see those config settings, and he wouldn't be able to touch any of them anyway. Just so a lonely dev producing code. That's what. I that's have. right. So let's let's uh, let's have you go to the app, mm-hmm. and let's see. Let's see. Let's see how it looks. Let's see if you can get into it. Can I get into it? Let's. Uh... So let's, let's switch. switch. We don't let's mind switch switching to... back to Christos' screen briefly. Sorry, we forgot to mention this one up front. So Christos is a member of my organization. I've given him an account. So he's got an account just like he does, just like he would at work. So he's going to try to use that account to sign in. Zoom in a little bit, Christos, please. There we go. Is that big enough? Yes. Thank you. Good. I'm going to use my password. I believe you have fade me. How dare you? <laughs> I mean, you know, How? developers, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I've kind of cool them. I've written code for what 16, 17 years now, and I think that I've probably annoyed most of the administrators I've ever worked with with my constant banal requests. Can you click this, please? Can you do this, please? I need this access, please. No, no, no. You know, okay. It works. So you're signed in. Yeah. It, we're all there. Daniel, me, you. It's a fantastic tenant to be in. And I like the fact that me as a developer, I don't have to worry about you know, pushing this into the production or knowing secrets or anything like that. I can operate on my developer tenant. And when we're ready, we're going to use that same script or any other tool I can write. JP can write that or I can write that and make it part of the CI CD process and therefore be secure and twin. And this is something very common, right? We rarely run applications against the production tenant in a dev environment. We don't want that. And it's, it's quite impeding as well due to the lack of permissions. So going from a dev environment to a QA production environment has to go through that normal process of CI/CD. Hopefully everyone's using CI/CD and not rightly published. Don't do that at home. But, <laughs> but uh, the whole point there is that we at least showed you a path to production uh, with today's uh, session. And we want to thank you again for coming to see me and JP acting this out. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, the code is on GitHub. So the code is on um, GitHub. We'll have a blog post and follow us on Twitter if you want to find out more. And you can watch us on the Forty Five Show if uh, you want more identity and geekiness. Oh, that was awesome! That was great. I enjoyed it uh, as an IT pro, even though you know I don't have that hair. 
Jason, what did you think? I, I was just actually looking at my Twitter profile because I had that hair <laughs> not that long ago. And I'm, I'm kind of, but you're a developer. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of more on the ops camp. True. So I felt a little seen, but they were absolutely right about everything they said. True. I mean, we'll, make sure well. All of you, we'll make sure all of you get one. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be perfect. I cut my everybody hair off wig. right at the beginning of the pandemic. But otherwise, you get a wig looking... and you get a wig and you get a wig. Everybody gets a wig, like Oprah. <laughs> That's cheaper. Azure eighty blue wigs for everybody. Yes, perfect. Branded blue. Branded new swag. <laughs> Next up, we have Scott Stansfield, who's going to be joining us, talking about Windows Terminal and the command line for data engineering. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Hey, Anthony, how you doing? <laughs> this has been fun. That last show had some shell script code, so I was very, very excited to see that. Um, yeah, so uh, we can just jump right in. I can give you a little bit of background. Um, lately, I've been doing these five-minute shows on Hello World, and I've got a luxurious 20 minutes. So I'm going to take people through arguably some of the most boring stuff that you can do on Windows, which is watch a neophyte Windows person use the command line. It's a boring on two different dimensions. But I promise you, for the people watching at home, if you get through this, you're going to unlock some, some features. Features, gosh. How do I say this? Okay, I got a metaphor about command line. Um, we got a mouse to help us move and navigate a UI that's based in two dimensions, right? So width and height. Um, command line is one dimension. You see all of it, but you only interact with left to right at one time, this kind of one dimensional space. So you have this real constraint that can be very off-putting. And as it turns out, as I'm finding and setting up Windows and Linux, uh, sorry, setting up Linux on Windows, I'm realizing some of the defaults that I have since fixed are real showstoppers and they're kind of anti-patterns. And so I wanna help people get through um, what it's like to set up the command line, but also why, but to set it up right. Now, I haven't used, been using Windows, oh gosh, it was like, I'd have to count the decades since <laughs> Windows 3.0. And then I went back to Unix and I've kind of come full circle back to Windows 10 last night, maybe two days ago, setting up Terminal from scratch. And I kind of wanted to see what it's like. So um, in the spirit of Hello World and in showing people new things, you're going to see me kind of new on Windows, but interpreting it from this, this experience I'm bringing from Linux and Unix and Mac OS back. So you want to jump in? Let's jump in. Actually, while you do that, I had a quick question for you. Yeah. In terms of doing this in terminal, and a lot of people shy away from the command line. I've done a lot of PowerShell myself mm -hmm. because they see the, the 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 command line as a scary entity. And why yeah. not just run in the GUI? Is because mm -hmm. I can graphically see all my steps. What is the advantage here that we're we're going to be sharing? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. The um, I can. You know, I've seen installation scripts for just recently. I, I set up the Azure IoT portal, and it was mostly like a, from a Word document with a bunch of screen pastings. And I'm sure that given the time, and it probably could be scripted and probably is, but I'd much rather run a script um, that's, I'm going to use a fancy word, item potent, so I can run it and rerun it as many times, and I end up kind of in the same state. Then I want to like go and follow a series of steps like uninstall and set up. So, but to me, really, I think the thing is, I found I, I'm just not really, I'm not really good with the mouse because my wrists hurt. And as I've been programming for such a long time, I like to keep my fingers on the home row and never take them off even for the up arrow on the mouse. And so that modality kind of gets me into 
typing and programming faster on the command line, including things like I saw earlier setting up the scripts. You get you can version control it and um, uh, get some reproducibility. Now, some of what I'm about to show you right now. Um, actually, before you do so, can you actually share the screen so that we can show I, our viewers? I think I am. So I am looking at StreamYard. This is uh, this is clearly live. Uh, I. If this doesn't work, I'm going to restart it. But let me see. Share my screen. And I'm going to share the audio. OK. And I think it's sharing. And in a moment, you will all see it. Uh, I've taken my clean Windows 10 machine and gone back a few times to kind of clean, clean it up so I can see what it's like from scratch. And I'm going to double check. I'm going to go back. Um, you're, not seeing the, you're not seeing the screen yet, are you? No, they're still not seeing the screen in the back. Okay, end. so I'm just going to rejoin. So um, let me back in here. Okay, so but by the way, this tool that we're using is really cool. Like I've got, I needed to do something like this a few days ago, um, and being on the like the talent end of it, I got to be the operator, and it's a really nice product. It's um, there's some aspects of of it that have been fantastic, but in this case. Sharing a screen from a laptop I don't normally use, and now it should be good. This is going to be a really difficult thing to do if I can't share my own screen. <laughs> Come on. Nope, they're still not getting it, unfortunately. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. I can also yep. share my Mac. That's probably not. Ah, I'm going to stop one more go. thing. Leap Studio. Okay. Let me let me tell a story. So when I first talked to Scott. Um, who's a producer of the show um, a few days ago about doing this, he said he wants me to talk about a problem that I solved and kind of go through the steps to, to reproduce it. And I immediately thought about all the data engineering tasks that I've done. And um, if you deal with any data that's from a human, uh, if, if there's any data, like rarely, and if you go to Kaggle competitions and like you download sample Titanic data or whatever, that data is nice and clean, probably because it's come from a computer or someone else has modified right. it. But any data that you get from, say, a um, from that's been entered by a human, any text that a human has typed into is going to be an awful mess. And so I thought, of all the different of all the different sites that I've gone to, of all the different systems I've used in the past. Everything starts with messy human entered data. And by messy, like, you know, the smart quote problem, like, you know, double quote, uh, prime and inch marks are converted to like the upside down nine and upside down six. Uh, right, that's, right. that's a feature of Windows and it is, it is correct typographically. The problem is that character doesn't exist in ASCII. And since so much of our information gets funneled down into this seven bit space, when it's stored, it gets reconstituted as a mess. And sometimes that mess uh, makes its way into data that we have to work with. I think I'm in the right channel now. I did have the wrong link. Okay. So backstage, they're, they're telling us just to get that messy information right into the right broadcast studio. Well, you know uh, what? The, thank goodness we have a URL that's not a that's not a GUID. So <laughs> um, whatever program we're using, like GUIDs for for developer use are fine, but just please don't ever surface them up because the only reason I was able to join this call right now is because I had the GUID correct. Not the GUID, the, like the short code. Like I don't need 120 bits of entropy. A short code is just fine. But having the right code is good as well. So this uh, this is Windows. You guys have seen Windows 10. <laughs> All I have, uh, I have a couple things pre-installed. I have Terminal 
And let me just say, if I ever talk to you and like we're walking through a script and like go down to the command line, I no longer mean command. Okay, the command prompt, which has been around for ages, um, you can get to the command prompt from terminal. Okay, so it's a little weird. And I thought, you know what, we should take a step back and define what are we looking at. I'm using the terminal program and it in its multiple tabs can go into different shells. So I used to do presentations on fonts versus typefaces. The new thing is a terminal emulator versus a shell. And it's like, it's so confusing. It's a many to many problem. In this case, Windows terminal is the way to go. If nothing but for the fact that the default, the, the fault, the, gosh, the font is gorgeous. Cascadia, I love it. Like there's two things I love about this experience for the past 24 hours. Number one, Cascadia is just so cool. And we'll see it more. The other is it's extremely fast. Not, not just Windows, I mean, Windows might be fast. What I really like is the um, the virtual machines, uh, like going into WSL and installing it, super quick. Right. So I am telling you this, keep in mind, I'm telling you from kind of a new experience, so it's kind of fun. Um, what's not fun is the fact that the bell goes off constantly. You Is that passing through, that little cute sound? It, it reminds me of Star Tours, like the loading sound of, and last night I'm hitting backspace a lot and Cindy was like, what is that noise? And I, I can kind of trigger it. I know I can trigger it by just echoing a special key code to the screen. And are you hearing it, Anthony? Is it coming through? Oh, I'm, I'm hearing it loud and clear. It sounds like okay. the TPC bells here in Toronto. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Well, it's awful. Um, <laughs> the first time it's barely tolerable, but after a while, and, and I realized um, it's because, well, it's because a lot of this technology even though it's 2021, is built around 1963 technology. Ask you. Actually, before you continue on, Scott, a couple of our viewers are asking if you can click on the hide on the on the bar, the share bar there, because you're missing oh, out on the text. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's all good. Find my mouse. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So, um, so we're modern day running we're running Linux on Windows, which is amazing. And I'm showing an ASCII screen. It's because, um, the, by the way, the history of ASCII and Unicode take them separately is fascinating and the engineering decisions that AT&T through Bell Labs and a bunch of people, the first committee that got together, I swear is like one of the most fascinating reads about um, information, hamming codes and how to pack as much information in to seven bits and the decisions that they made. At some point I could do a podcast or something on it. Um, I think a lot of us might know if you've been a programmer for a while that capital A, the ASCII code for capital A is 65. And you know they call these things sticks, and you know why is why is the capital A not right here, and why is delete a series of ones, and that has to do with punch cards. And I'll leave it as an exercise here. But the thing I'm looking at, the very first thing I've noticed is this: the bell. If I print um, in octal like a code, well, any code. What I was doing, I was just running uh, the command printf07, which is the bell. That's the equivalent of Control G. So this G character right here, if you put a control in front of it and send it to a terminal around the world, it will ring a bell. Usually that's turned off or the sound effect will be turned off. You can do a lot of things to prevent it. All I did was go down here and go to the volume mixer and turn off the sound from PowerShell. So now when I run it again, it's quiet. So it's a small thing and most people would just turn the volume down. Instead, I went back to the 1963 spec for ASCII to figure out why it's doing that. It's doing that to inform a teletype operator on their other end that your terminal may need attendance, attending to. So you could send a remote bell to someone else. 
enough with the bell. We'll come back to ask you though, because there's a lot to that. Um, so um, let me go back in. By the way, I love this. You can just map these guys to numbers. So I go window two oh, yeah. and then windows up. And I set Ubuntu for my default so I can drop down in here quickly. Time permitting at the end, I will install Debian from scratch with the packages mm -hmm. I need and it goes pretty fast. But um, now it, it's so fast. I ran it a couple times. I didn't think it worked. It takes about two minutes max. I mean, it's fast. But let me get back to this. So I'm in. The bell is off. Um, remember that bit about the mouse? Like, what is the kind of mouse equivalent on the command line? And I'll show you. Um, make this font nice and big. If I type a comment like, this is the command line, um, my equivalent of mouse is this cursor, you know, the vertical bar cursor. I can move that cursor anywhere on the command line with uh, my left hand with a keystroke, like control A or control E. I love this. Um, I can go forward with F, B with back. If I go to the end, I can start hitting control W to eat those words in. That functionality, if you think of it, it's, you know, it, there is somewhere that's interpreting these key, key sequences to move the cursor around. Um, on Mac OS, because it is Unix, it's based on BSD, that functionality is based on the library read line and it's everywhere. So even the URL bar in Chrome or any of the browsers, anything with a text box, you get that same functionality. So if I'm typing, I can always hit Control A, E, whatever to move the cursor around, It'd be really, really fast. And it's like having just a faster mouse. This is versus, sure, yes, you can lift up your hand and go end and home and you know arrow down and arrow left, but part of this kind of advanced class, this part of this hello world is giving you the skills and the small things to make you go faster. You know, uh, if I modified your car and swapped your turnkey stock for your windshield wipers, you would be okay. Like you would figure it out after, out after a while. It'd be annoying, but you would be able to do it. Um, what I'd like to say is that the control key is in the wrong place. Hmm. The control key is in the wrong place. Um, and I beg people, to remap the caps lock to control. And if there's nothing you take away from this talk, like forget the rest of it. Um, if you don't map your caps lock to control and instead you map it to something else, because let's be honest, it's a useless key. Um, it's great for yelling on the internet, but it's 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 kind of useless right now. Um, the right key, you know, the enter key, this pinky hammers that enter key all the time, but your left pinky, which is a really strong finger, is kind of useless and it turns out, um, the original keyboards, well, pre-IBM PCAT, and unfortunately, this keyboard is kind of this stealth mode, so you can't see it. But this this Happy Hacker keyboard, you can see the A. Oh my gosh, it's so hard to see. Um, <laughs> it's it's a control instead of caps lock. Um, I'm going to remap the caps lock, and I'm going to do it in a way that was just so much fun to discover. I'm going to go back to the PowerShell, and there's a program called Scoop. Now, I don't have it installed because I want to show you how easy it is to install this. You know, and remember, I'm coming at this from uh, Mac OS. We have the equivalent in Mac OS is Brew. So we use Homebrew to install programs on the command line. Scoop is similar. Um, I have to do, I've already done this command, and let me make this font bigger. So mm -hmm. this execution policy, I, I don't know, you're an IT person, what does that mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what that does, and it's probably bad, I did it, but uh, now I can run this command in the terminal. And all I'm doing is giving, you know, I'm installing Scoop. It's downloading some random bits on the internet, which is always a good idea. Uh, okay. Okay. Now it's installed. Now I'm on the command line and I'm in PowerShell. So I'm going to run Scoop 
um, I want to install, let's say I want to install, um, by the way, did you see that? I hit control P. I hit control P on the keyboard. Oh, wow. And I got a carrot P. Right. If we remember, let's come back to that because I'm going to fix that as well. And that control P is like the missing link. I have like four, four cards, caps lock to control, history, <laughs> tab expand. We only have five minutes though. That's the problem. <laughs> so I've got seven minutes. To cover everything today. I think he's gonna. I think Scott might let me go a little bit longer. So let me get this installed. So to install, um, I'm gonna install Power Toys to, to change it. And I wrote this down using Scoop. It's Scoop Bucket Add Extras. So that's extending Scoop uh, by going to the repositories and adding a few extra links, including the link to install uh, Power Toys. Now I've been using Power Toys before I switched to Windows, so it's great to see it's it's here and it's still running. Um, I used to write MSIs. So it's installed. Now I can launch it. Come on, Power Toys. There. And I want to go in. And by the way, this thing I'm about to do, I do it on every machine. I have to do it on mm -hmm. Mac. I have to do it on the Raspberry Pi. Um, I go into the keyboard manager, remap this key, caps lock. And believe me, you won't miss it. It's, it's fine to get rid of it. OK, Control. OK. Continue. I'm curious if, if you were Quit. to remap it as a shortcut to something uh, in terminal, like a, a spaces versus tabs type of thing or something to that effect, if you've ever done that before. Mapping the caps key? Yep. Um, I, I, I don't, but I see people map it to escape all the time. And yep. probably with good intentions because they're, they're using Vim, which is really near and dear to my heart. Um, but I want to say the reason why caps lock is there you have to go back to why and how the shell was created in the first place. So this is the ADM3A terminal, which was the first time that you could use an escape sequence to move a cursor anywhere in the keyboard. And the key, you know, a makers, we, we create products, but we're molded by the tools that we use to create tools. Does that make sense? So um, early, early software development here was done on this keyboard. And you can see the control key is next to the A. Now it turns out right. the control key was moved down to where it is now, like the appendix, it was like an afterthought, was moved by IBM. When they created the one of the best keyboards in the world, the IBM PCAT, the yeah. caps lock was in the wrong spot. But the key, the feel is great. There's something else I want you to notice on here. Over here in the home key, there's a tilde. If you've been using Linux, you know there's if you type CD tilde, it goes home. And maybe that was why it's called home. I don't know. Um, line feed we don't use anymore because that would spit the paper up and down. But we do use this a lot, HJKNL. In fact, I use it so much. I have a sticker that my son made for me. And of course, I can't find it, but it's literally that HJKNL sticker. And I tend to have it on my phone or my iPad, and it's not here. Um, <laughs> so very important bit of, bit of knowledge, but that's why Caps Lock is there. And once it's there, now you can do things. It's a more natural fit to do. Right. Um, echo something. I can do control A and E, but I can also do control P and N. I didn't show this, but this is related to history. So I talked to Chris Anderson, a friend of mine yesterday about what are his top like command line tips. He said, up arrow, number one, use the up arrow to go back through your history to right. see what you've typed. Now you can right. also type history, which is kind of long. Um, I have it mapped to just the letter H so I can see more, but if you're typing something, you make a mistake like LSX. I'm like, ah, oh, of course. I'm going to hit Control P for the previous command, and right. then just hit Backspace. So that Control P, Control N, the Control key really starts 
starts to make this all make sense. Now, I kind of blew through my time budget. Uh, we've got like another minute left. I think I hit the key points around mapping. Um, I have plenty more here. The, the next step is now you've got the sound off, you've got the caps key locked. I've got um, two final things. One is my default experience is not bash. And this is a real problem. As much as I like Readline, which is the one-dimensional UI that manages the control key from manipulating the cursor, that's maintained. Oh, I found my sticker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. Right yeah, in front of me the whole time. Yeah. I, if I see one of these, I want to get the license plate HJKNL. Um, Readline is maintained by the person who wrote Bash. Like the guy that wrote and continues to maintain Bash maintains the the API, so to speak, of that. However, Bash is an awful awful interaction experience for, for primarily one reason. I'm gonna run it and show you what I mean. Let's say I'm in, I'm in the directory Eureka, which I'll go over this code on a hello world. This is what I intended to get to, but ran out of time. Um, in this folder, I have a file called setup.sh. You can see it you know, right here. Let's say I have another file called set2. And let's say I wanna remove setup for, or wanna remove one of these. If I type se and hit tab, it showed me that there were two other files, set2 and setup.sh, but it completed it for me for set2. And then, like, why did it choose set2 over setup? And so I believe this tab expansion is enough of an anti-pattern that really would, should uh, be a reason to switch, frankly, to Z shell. For one thing, it makes color a lot easier, but now if I do RMSE and hit tab, well, I, I delete it. It doesn't complete it for me. It's waiting for me to go choose the file. So, Scott, I apologize. UI yeah. is important, and getting this, getting this stuff right is tough. Sorry, Scott. We have to end the segment. But if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to ask you questions on terminal? Uh, I'm not going to answer terminal. any questions. <laughs> no, uh, C sharp. It's just uh, I have the alias that uh, Fritz needs to have. <laughs> C sharp, Fritz. No, mine is C sharp. S-E-E -E sharp, um, and I'll, I'll check it right now. And um, I'm probably gonna continue this because now we got it set up, we should do something with it. We should, 100%. Uh, yeah, we'll come back. Anthony, Let's, it was great, and thanks for sticking with me on the uh, screen share. Thanks, Scott. Cheers, Let's Jason. bring Jason back in. Uh, that hey, Jason. Always, it's always a lot of fun. I love watching people get into the terminal and and just use their, their ninja hand skills. Yeah, good times. And uh, I'm looking forward to your next segment now with Frank. Yeah, let's bring Frank on here, who's uh, joined us and uh, kind of a last minute addition to today's special show where he's going to be sharing his journey through debugging. <laughs> Look at that slide in. Hi, Frank. How's it going? Hey, it's going well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been an exciting week. Um, for those who have never seen you, never met you before, of course, you're you're part of the Hello World cast and part of the team I'm on that puts a lot of stuff on behind the scenes. Uh, but maybe you can introduce yourself to those who don't know you so well. Yes, of course. I'm Frank Boucher. I'm a cloud advocate based in Canada. That's why I have the French part of it. So that's why I have a funny accent, but like Anthony who speak perfect English. Um, I do a bunch of stuff, I stream, I do YouTube video, and that's part of so of the project that we'll be talking about today, uh, that trigger, that project. I do a lot of open source project with the community. I really like the collaboration and the energy that uh, I found over there. So that's what I do. 
Okay. And um, aside from all those things, you know, you've got your own shows, uh, you know, cloud in five minutes and you and I've done a lot of things around all around Azure. So it's been fun to, to work on projects together. And one of the projects that uh, I reached out to you to see if I could um, uh, understand a little bit better, because I had some use cases for it, was this URL shortener project that you had going on. Yes. Uh, maybe you can just give us a little bit of overview of what that is. Yeah. So, well, yeah, like URL shortener is um, like, you know, when you do video and stuff like that, you it's useful to share information or even like when you blog or you tweet or whatever, and like having a long, long, long URL, it's not very friendly for your viewers. So, and there's plenty of solution that exists, uh, Bitly and others that, you know, shrink your URL, but most of the time, it's just a bunch of character after. And I was like, ah, oh, it would be cool if I could have control on, on that part. And I thought, you know, I think it will be also nice to create one. So that's why I started creating my own project to share information in the screen. And, and, it, so and it worked, worked great. Easy. I was able to deploy your app right out of its GitHub repo into Azure, easy peasy. Uh, and then we kind of used it for a while and then realized, you know, it doesn't quite meet the needs for Hello World. Some of the things we were talking about um, required some dynamic element to to the URL shortener. So maybe you can share with us, like, it, there was a couple of things that we did, or you did specifically, uh, to sort of debug and change the way that that, that system worked for us. What was the first, um, I guess, pass you made at that? Yeah. So... What I really want to share tonight is really like that journey where like you're you're trying to solve the solution. And what I want to kind of so bring is I will talk about two solutions. I don't think like I'm spoiling right now. Like I don't think there's a best one. I picked yeah. one uh, because it was respecting the um, how can I say that? Like the, the the focus of the project. The way I build my solution was to be super easy to deploy so anybody can have it. Mm -hmm. And I want it as budget friendly as possible. Okay. So of course, if like you're a big business and you have tons of clicks and that's probably not the service or at least not the way it's built, it's probably not for you. But if you have under, I don't know, 10,000 clicks by month, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's probably very good. <laughs> <laughs> so. It was working perfectly, and I can share my 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 screen right yeah, now. So we've just got a to few. Explain, visualize. I had like so. This is uh, what it looks like, the interface. So you talked earlier with uh, Jeffrey Fritz. So I'm using Azure Functions. It's in .NET, and I'm also using Blazor WebAssembly as a UI. Mm -hmm. uh, though the UI is only for the administration part of it. So like it's a very simple. Like I was, fun I was focusing on the functionality, not the UI, the interface. So it's a very basic interface. But you know, you have list of short URLs. So like right now, like that will be something generated, and here will be like I don't know if it's a C5F, uh, C5M.ca. That's my domain name. Then like it will be slash deployment, and it will redirect to that GitHub. And like, of course, when you have those kind of links, you're also interested to maybe know how many people clicks on that. So I implemented that and, you know, I have nice chart. So 
the way it works is just as a user, like everybody, when they click on a short link, they just call my Azure function that is public, go into some storage. Right now I'm using Azure Data Storage because it is, it, it respect my, uh, my specificity of doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's perfect. It works like that. But for Hello World, what we needed was to have the same URL, but send people to different location based on time. Right. Because so sometimes when schedule. we are live, we want to send people to Hello World, uh, to Learn TV. And when we're not live, then send people to Channel 9, where we have all our archive. So the first solution that I implement was you know, like when we look to a, a solution where I have here, that's the storage. Well, I have like the short link, right? That's the short version, and I redirect the long one. But I needed to change that. So I thought, you know, if I'm thinking at performance, then I need to change that long URL. So I thought maybe I could have, I don't know, like a task that run every minutes or five minutes or something like that that update that. But then. I needed also to save the schedule and stuff like that. And as I was talking to some colleague, in fact, Scott, who's hidden, not the Scott that we were just seeing in the in the mm -hmm. screen, but someone who's hiding in the in the background of uh, Hello World, he thought like, hey, we could use cron expression. So cron expression or this information here, those characters. And this one, five, four, star, 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 mean every day at 4 a.m., five minutes. Hey, and speaking hey, of. Hey, there it is. We have Scott here. <laughs> so help me brainstorming. And in fact, he did the proof of concept that I implemented inside my, my uh, URL shortener. Has, you know, that's what I like about the communities. Like you could take code and everything. And like even you, you participate with uh, some deployment process that you helped me with. Yeah, that was fun. So the idea behind that was with the cron expression plus uh, duration, because an expression is just like a point in time. So I needed like a period, so a duration. I was able to have a way to put a schedule for URL. So now my, my time my timetable look like, again, the short version of my URL, the long version of my URL, the, the schedule that was just, in fact, like a JSON object that I put here, it can click on that, and still the same mm -hmm. you know, data that I, I want to carry. And so like I have a starting point, end point, just to simplify what I'm looking through, because I can stack multiple schedule for a same link. And it's very useful uh, for us, for example, if you're having an event, maybe at the beginning of the event, you want to send people to the registration. And when the event starts, you want to send yeah. to the live feed or something like that. And changing all the time, the URL could be fastidious. So having that, that you all put your schedule and then it's working. Well, um, if I may, Frank, one of the reasons, um, you know, the, the real life reason behind all of this is the show that we do, Hello World, is daily. And um, depending on the time of the day and, and just different things, like we want it to take you to the live show if that's what's yeah. happening. So the links that we have there at the bottom of the screen right now uh, during the show will take you here 
to the show on Learn TV. Otherwise, it takes you to someplace uh, on Channel 9's page to give you a yes. little bit more detail. So well, we really saw the archive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's how I implement. I think both solutions are good. The reason why I implement that one is just not having that process that always run was since I'm using Azure Function, I pay when I use. If I use it less, then yeah. it's 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 more budget. I don't like to use uh, cheaper, but you know, budget friendly. Yeah, exactly. Well, it just goes to show there's no silver bullet uh, or one size fits all. Uh, we had different needs that we needed to move off of one version to another. And your solution that you came up with uh, was an alternate to one that was a little bit more cost effective. Yeah. Um, so lots of different ways to, to get to the same to get to the same results. So yeah, thanks and for it's sharing. It's a big project. So if people want to join, ask questions, try it, it's on GitHub. The link will be in the show notes and I uh, will be happy to uh, help you to get there. Awesome. Well, thank you, Frank. We're going to move on. I really appreciate you sharing your stories with us. Anthony, I think we're getting close to wrapping this special episode up. Oh, you know, time flies when you're having fun. This Doesn't has been it? an awesome episode. <laughs> uh, and so wrapping it up, we have Oren Thomas, who's going to be joining us, talking about IT stuff for devs. And this is an interesting topic because there was a lot of mentioning of IT professional roles and services at Build. So exciting to have Oren Thomas here to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Oren, what is an IP address? Oren, my friend, you're on you're on mute. <laughs> if anything, Hello World has been very entertaining uh, in regards to everything going on as he's checking his mic. Where? Oh, we there we go. There we go. We're good now. The Yeti had just um, had a conniption. Um, so this started because I had a conversation with one of my dev friends, and I was just explaining IP address and subnet masks, and he sort of looked at me like. I don't understand anything that you're talking about. And this was to you and I, because you and I are on the IT pro side of the fence, rather flummoxing, because this is something that we've understood intuitively our entire career. <clears throat> so he said, hey, why don't you uh, do a segment on this? So we're just talking a bit about what IP addresses are. So um, it's sort of, sort of like a telephone number. That might be the first one, that every host on the internet has an IP address. And there's uh, two different sorts of IP address. There's a public IP address and there's a private IP address. So a public IP address, in theory, should be routable to the internet. So you can almost think of it like a telephone number where you can ring any other telephone in the world. And then you've got a private IP address, and a private IP address is a sort of a bit like an extension within a building. So you might ring 45182 when you're in the same building as someone, and that'll ring someone else's phone. But that phone might not be ringable from someone else outside the building, and that's sort of how private IP addresses work. Now, there's another several other classes of IP address, including multicast, but we're not going to talk about those because those aren't really relevant to Azure virtual networks. Now, the interesting thing about a private IP address, and you probably have this on your home network and your building network, is a private IP address is not routable from the internet. So if I was trying to connect to a private IP address from a host on the internet, I couldn't connect directly. There's technologies such as network address translation that allow that, but that's getting a bit complicated. However, if you've got a thing called network address translation, you can contact 
from a private IP address range out to the internet. And that's likely what you do at home with your ISP. Now, IP addresses are made up of a four set of numbers and then what's called a subnet mask. Now, those numbers go from zero to 255, and then the subnet masks also go from zero to 255. And the reason for that is that there are actually four blocks of eight-bit numbers, and eight bits goes to 255. So, so what is what is what exactly is a subnet mask? Okay, so a subnet mask allows the IP address to, or it's a way of defining what the network is. Now, in the old days, we used to sit there and we used to worry about how much network traffic there was. So what we do is we what we've called subnet up networks, so that there was only a limited number of hosts on the networks. And the host could determine using the subnet mask, it'd look at its IP address and it'd look at the subnet mask and go, is this host on the same physical network as me? Or do I need to send this traffic through the router to get to the host? And that's what the subnet mask tells the host. So in respect to that, how what IP ranges can be used when addressing VNets? Okay. So when you set up a virtual network in Azure, you will be assigned or you have the option of using a private IP address range. So the private IP address ranges, and you're probably kind of vaguely aware of this because you'll see them all the time, is 10.0.0.0 .0 .0 through to 10.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.255.
that IP address. So it's not routable, so you can use it. Now, one of the things that you need to keep in mind when you're using IP addresses in the cloud is, okay, now what does this VM need to connect to? If you need to connect it to your on-premises network, you might want to, you will want to make sure that your IP address ranges that you're using for your private IP address ranges in Azure are different from your IP address ranges on-prem. Because if you go and connect those networks, what you don't want to do is you don't want to have two hosts, one up in the cloud or one on-prem that has the same IP address. Similarly, if you've got multiple Azure subscriptions and then you suddenly decide, oh, I want that computer to talk to that computer, but I want them to talk privately. I don't want them to talk over the internet. You want to make sure that they're on different logical networks so that they understand how to talk to one another. And so why would somebody, you know, go and deploy multiple VNets? Okay, so when you deploy a VM, it'll go and set a VNet up for you, and then it'll go and give you a subnet within that VNet. Now, if you want to go and configure a VPN to that v VM, well, it needs another subnet. So there's instantly two, or if you wanted to use ExpressRoute, you wanted to connect those subnets together, or if you're replicating an on-prem architecture, you might set up your VNet so that there's literally a subnet that functions like a perimeter network or a demilitarized zone, which is got hosts where you configure the firewalls on that subnet so that it's accessible from the internet. And then you can have a private subnet that's adjacent to that and then configure the firewall rules so that only hosts in that first perimeter network, and that might be hosting your web app. And then you might have VMs hosting your data tier in the second subnet and have that locked off. So there's one reason for having multiple subnets. And you know, in regards to creating that, how many virtual networks would you need and what would be your best course of action or, or best um, way to understand what is required by the organization's needs? Okay, so the way to remember this is that you can have lots and lots and lots of virtual networks. However, a virtual network is you've a virtual network can't span regions. So the first thing is, okay, am I using a single region deployment or am I using a multiple region deployment? Now, if I've got a single region deployment and I've got a bunch of VMs, do these VMs need to be on separate VNets? And the only real reason I can think of that you might do that would be maybe there's some compliance issues, maybe there's some security issues, maybe there's some management issues. But other than that, what you would do is you create one VNet and then you'd subnet that VNet up. Think about it like an on-prem network that you would might subnet up your on-prem network and you might have a specific set of hosts on this subnet, a specific set of hosts on that, and then you can partition them off with firewalls to stop them from communicating. So you can do all of your security and your networking within the subnet. So you only need one VNet per region. Now, what you can also do is you can peer VNets together. So if you've got, say, a Sydney region and then you've got one up in Canada and you want those hosts to talk directly to one another, as long as you've got different IP address ranges in your subnets, you can peer those together and then they can directly communicate across those virtual networks. So I would say a good way of approaching it is to say, right, We've got one virtual network here. So when you're deploying a virtual machine, make sure that you select 
that virtual network. You don't go with the default and go and create a brand new virtual network and that you actually plan out where you're going to have this virtual machine. Because another thing I've seen is that people go and deploy a virtual machine, they accept the defaults, and then they've allocated 255 IP addresses to a subnet, but they've got one VM on the subnet. And then they go and deploy another virtual machine and then they do another 255 addresses for that. And you're not going to run out. It's just a messy way of doing it. And then eventually you're sitting there going, I don't know what all of these networks do. How do I get all of these machines to communicate with one another? Does that then become like a latency concern in terms of data access because of all the addressments are out there? Or is it just complexity in terms of understanding your networking map? Look, it's mostly going to be a complexity issue simply because the more networks you're adding, you're suddenly sitting there thinking, okay, and especially if you're thinking about connecting it to your on-prem network. And one of the challenges that we've got is we've, you know, we've always got a, a, a problem with cloud sprawl. And cloud sprawl occurs because it's simply so easy to go and do these things. And it's only when you sort of sit there and you come in later and you try and rationalize, okay, I want to secure these networks. And then suddenly you realize that you've got to go and configure firewall rules or network security groups that are like 30 different networks because you've got 30 different VMs, each is sitting on its own network. Whereas what you could do is you could all have those sitting on the same network, configure one set of security rules, and it'd work a lot easier and it'd be a lot easier to manage. Now, this has been awesome. And you know we were able to cover a lot in the time that we had together. If people want to learn more, what are the resources that are out there? I, I used to use an IP calculator back in the day. What are the resources uh, that are out there? That's a great question. Um, I remember I used to use learntosubnet.com to learn about um, subnetting. But there are resources on docs.microsoft.com that teach you some of this. But it's, it's, it's one of those interesting sort of core skills that we almost assume as basic knowledge before people are coming in. So it's one of those things that we don't and have never really explicitly taught except for back in the 90s when we used to have a TCP IP version 4 exam. And obviously that doesn't apply. Now there are Azure networking courses on MS Learn and that would certainly be something that you would uh, start looking at. Excellent. Oren, thank you for being on the show today. So awesome to have you on here. Let's bring back Jason to the show. Jason, we got a minute left. Wow, this show just flew by. It did, but at the same time, I feel like we made it. You know, it was a little bit of a marathon. It's been just a long couple of days with Microsoft Build and preparing for our special episodes. So thank you to all of our guests and them sharing all these amazing stories from you know their different journeys through debugging, through just helping us get you know terminal and PCs and all that set up. Uh, Oren, thank you so much for hanging out and and uh, you know giving us a lesson on IP networking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what else am I missing, Anthony? I don't know. Yeah. There's Diego's wall. We had Azure Percept with uh, with Paul. Uh, we had the command line engineering with Scott Stansfield. There was a lot on the show. And it, it was awesome to have all the conversations with all of you too on social. Yeah. And I think we got we got time and there's a few of them still hanging out backstage. So let's maybe bring in, uh, Orrin was just with us. So bring on Orrin Thomas. Hi, Orrin. Thanks for hanging Thanks, out. Being part of the show. Uh, let's bring Christos back. I see him backstage. Hi, Christos. Thank you so much. And uh, Frank's still back there also. We'll bring Frank back in. Hi, Frank. Thank you Hello. so much for your share. And uh, I think that's, is that everybody that's still hanging out? And no, no, we've still, let's bring Scott Kate on too. He was on, a big part of a lot of the stories that we, sh we shared today. Go. So um, I think that's about 
it for us. Uh, make sure you check out the show notes, aka.ms slash hello world will take you there. And as we learned, if you're watching live, it'll take you to the live stream as well. And um, tomorrow, another hello world. We'll see you again next time. Thanks, everyone. Great show, everyone. <laughs>